A few of us are endeavouring to raise a fund to buy the poor some meat and drink and food and warmth. Oh, what can we put you down for, sir? Nothing. You wish to be anonymous? I wish to be left alone. Since you ask me what I wish, gentlemen, that is my answer. I don't make merry myself at Christmas, and I can't afford to make idle people merry. My taxes help to support the public institutions which I have mentioned, and they cost enough. Those who are badly off must go there. Many can't go there, and many would rather die. If they would rather die, perhaps they had better do so, and uh, decrease the surplus population. Surely you don't mean that, sir. With all my heart. Now, if you will go about your business, gentlemen, and allow me to go about mine. Merry Christmas and welcome to Horror Movie Podcast, where we're dead serious about horror movies. We have a bi-weekly show that's released every other Friday, and this is episode 37, our Christmas horror-themed show for this year. On Horror Movie Podcast, you'll hear in-depth horror movie reviews, usually for new releases as well as old releases, with ratings and recommendations to help you decide whether you should buy, rent, or avoid these movies. And I am your host, Jay of the Dead, podcasting from Salt Lake City, and my co-hosts tonight are... Dave, uh, Dr. Shock Becker from just outside Philadelphia, PA. And Wolfman Josh, looking forward to talking some ho-ho horror tonight. <laughs> well done. <laughs> I see what you did there. That was great. <laughs> uh, <laughs> when you pointed out. <laughs> uh, my favorite one to do with that is um, I was on this rap that I did, you know, with this girl and it was a joke, right? She was like dogging me, right? And I said something to the effect of, ho, 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 I've done more rapping than Santa Claus. Get it? Uh, you, you got the double entendre with the ho, 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 and then yeah. rapping like presents. Anyway, we got it. so <laughs> at this point, very good. Let's um, Genius. we'll shut up about that. Completely killed the moment. <laughs> can you can you um can you put that Christmas rap on this episode? <laughs> it was it wasn't a Christmas rap, but I do have more hoes than Swiss cheese. I'm just kidding. That was a joke. Okay, <laughs> let's let's move into the got well, more hoes than Santa Claus. <laughs> this um, my wife's gonna be here in a minute yelling at me. Okay, let's move into this week's feature review of P2. Angela, are you okay? I didn't mean to scare you. What happened to my clothes? Yeah. What do you want? I've seen you drive out of here so many times. It's strange being with you. It's great, actually. Please, if anyone can hear me. Someone's trying to kill me. Okay, guys, I'm the kind of guy who's a big appreciator of taglines, and I will say I think P2 has one of the best taglines that I know of. I've been keeping an ongoing running tally, or at least a running list of great taglines, and this has one of them. And the tagline is, the only thing more terrifying than being alone is realizing that you're not. <laughs> That's awesome. P2 was released on November 9th, 2007, and I'm happy to report that I saw it in theaters on that very Friday. And I just wanted to kick it off by saying I think that this movie is overlooked and underappreciated and really not very well known. And I, the first thing I would just credit that to is a bad title. 
I mean, it's not like yeah. this movie's a masterpiece or anything, but I think that its biggest challenge was getting over the whole P2 thing. I mean, what is P2? And for those who don't know, it's a parking garage level marker so people can know the level and the section where they parked and so forth. So that's why it's called P2. But nobody has that context or understanding when they just see it in the store or whatever, you know, it's just, it's, well, even if you do see it, which I, I mean, I, I recognize that about it when I eventually saw the poster, but it's like, doesn't really capture your imagination, a parking garage no. <laughs> number, you know? I know. Yeah. <laughs> and I sensed that about you, Wolfman. I sensed that you were skeptical about this film. And, um, you know, I resent that because I, well, I didn't, I didn't know the, I didn't know the lineage behind the film. I didn't realize Alexander Aja and all these guys were involved with the movie. Mm -hmm. I do remember seeing the poster and okay. it, it looking terrible to me. So, <laughs> you know, I, I, and you know, and I was skeptical that it was a Christmas movie <laughs> as well. I know you were. Well, yeah. hey, let me, let me give the premise here so people can know what this is all about. So it's Christmas Eve in this movie in New York city and Angela, who's played by, uh, Rachel Nichols, uh, she's late for this family Christmas party. So she's getting ready to leave work and she's unaware that there's this obsessed admirer, this security guard named Thomas, who's played by Wes Bentley. And he has other holiday plans for her. And basically, she gets trapped by him in an underground parking garage on level P2 for the most part. And is terrorized by the psychopath and his dog. And that's the premise. And so it is set on Christmas Eve. And I will say as far as like Christmas environment, you know, the stalker, the, the monster guy, the bad guy, his office is decorated with Christmas lights, which you see a lot in this movie. And there's a sequence involving uh, Blue Christmas, the, the song, you know, the Elvis song. And then, song and, then, and then he dresses as he dresses as Santa Claus briefly, yeah. albeit very briefly, but he yeah. does. It's right. It's brief, but he's in a Santa suit. And so and yeah. since it is Christmas, I mean, you got lots of carols playing throughout the film. And I love that in a movie like this. And it's enough to, to make this a Christmas horror movie for me because I, I like it because there's this obviously and this is very obvious. I'll just state this out front of the episode here. We usually associate Christmas as a time of peace and happiness. And so that's juxtaposed with these horror movie moments. And so we're kind of your wrestling. Your favorite definition of horror, which is the disturbance of peace. That, yeah, that is. Thank you. That is one of my favorites, Wolfman. I'm so <laughs> flattered you remember that. And so you're wrestling with these oxymoronic emotions that seem to definitely contradict with each other. So anyway, uh, Wolfman Josh, now that you've seen this Christmas type horror movie what do you think about it well it's low on the horror scale i would say it's closer to a thriller for me um i know it's your type of horror being the survival type of horror i'm gonna list all my problems with it first okay. i'm not a huge fan of rachel nichols um I, I i know she's in a bunch of huge movies i just they're not movies that i've really watched much i saw her in gi joe and scarlet the character of Scarlett and G.I. Joe was one of my major childhood crushes along with Lady J. So um, <laughs> I was a bit disappointed in her portrayal of Scarlett. Not, not was, cover girl? No, no? No, I was Lady J, man, mostly. But Scarlett, you know, Scarlett played an important, pivotal role in my 
adolescence. I don't know. <laughs> anyway, um, I just don't love her as an actor. She did fine. I, I wouldn't take anything away from her, but she just is a little generic looking. And this is terrible to say. She just has a very generic look to me. Um, but she does a fine job. I mean, she's she's perfectly capable. Um, I was surprised to see Wes Bentley in the film because I didn't know it was a real movie going into it. And so that was interesting to see <laughs> an actor of his caliber um, in the film. Although I will say, because he's such a well-known actor, he brings a lot of baggage with him. And it was hard for me to get over that initially. But he... You know, it's funny. I was thinking the same thing. For me, it's always... He's the... Uh, He's the bag in the wind guy from American yes. City, you know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Four Feathers is another one I always think of him in. But, uh, you know, his his career has just recently kind of taken an uptick thanks to, I think, his inclusion in the Hunger Games movies. But he disappeared for a long while there, and this was during kind of his period where he wasn't doing much. Um, so I was happy for him to get a role like this, and he really went for it, and he pulls it off occasionally. Um it's a very basic movie. I mean, I, you know, I, yeah, I guess that could be a positive that it's so simple. Mm-hmm. Um, ultimately the things that bore me about the title are kind of the things that bore me about the movie. It's um, not a very interesting location, or at least I don't think they used it in the most interesting way possible. But having said all those criticisms, I do like the overall tone. I do like the setting. I do like the use of use of Christmas. I think they could have gone further with that. I think the use of the song blue Christmas was perfect and incredible actually like mm-hmm. that was one of my favorite parts of the movie yes. um there's a really intense gore scene in the film that i think is yeah. done really well um yes. and yeah i mean that, that that's it I, th- I just would have liked to see it go a little bit further i think it ultimately is a bit more of a thrill on the thriller end of the horror spectrum on the intense uh, gore scene just real quick sorry yeah. um there were two that i loved that i'm just trying to differentiate which one there's one involving an eyeball right and there's one involving a car <laughs> the car would, was the one i thought was incredible. i would think you were talking about the car yeah that yeah. I, I agree with you on that one me too i i love that car. was a cringe that made i mean that makes you cringe when, when i mean the, the first the first one and then you yeah. kind of see the results and then uh, <laughs> it, it continues on um yeah, yeah. speaking it, of cars this movie is one of those movies we've talked about it recently, I think on movie podcast weekly about movies that kind of open up with a scene that plays two thirds of the way through the film. And Mm -hmm. then you work your way back to there. Yes. Um, I'm curious to see if you thought that was effective or if you guys liked that inclusion uh, of that scene. You know what? I liked it because I'll I'll tell you what, as you're watching that, when that happens, you expect, okay, this is going to be I, – I usually go right to the end of the movie and yeah. think this is something that's going to be the end of – like, okay, this, uh, this is what's going to happen. This is what's going to sort of wrap the movie up, which was not the case. You're right. It was more of a two-thirds reveal Yeah, you know, mm-hmm. at, at a key scene, and you hear – like uh, from the perspective, you, you hear the music playing, and you're kind of like, oh, okay, yes, this is, this is that scene from the beginning. Um, that, that, that they're playing out now and you didn't realize what was going on at that point. You know, you you recognize the music and you knew what was going on. Um, uh, that this is the opening scene. So I guess we could talk about this as somebody in the trunk of a car. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. and you don't know anything else other than that, but then you find out when that scene's playing out, it's like, Oh, okay. This is why it was so, it was, it was an important scene and, and, um, and, and why they were struggling so much. 
so I like that. I thought that was um, I thought that was interesting, you know. But like I said, I was thinking it would be an an ending. It'd be yeah. more toward the end, and I liked the fact that there was still more to go after that. Yeah, that storytelling structure. I actually um, I usually really love that, and I I think it's probably used most famously, or maybe I don't know if this was the first instance of it. Doc could probably tell us, but I Dr. think of it barbecue. No, no. I think of it as an, an All About Eve from 1950. Okay. Uh, that's a very prominent, that's a great use of that very technique, that storytelling structure. Mm, and, well and, done, Jason. And, well, well, thank yeah. you. Yeah. And yeah. I, Jay of the Dead. I mean, thank, there you go. <laughs> well, thank you I mean, so you get much. A lot, you, get a, you get some movies, like I know it depends though. Something like Yankee Doodle Dandy used it, but then it told the story um, like in retrospect, where where Jim, uh, Jimmy Cagney's character goes to get an award from President Roosevelt, mm-hmm. and then is telling the story of his life almost like to the president. Um, but he it, it starts off with him going to get this sort of lifetime achievement, mm-hmm. uh, or for or for his contributions to the war effort with his music and so forth. Yeah, right. but but as far as like as uh, as far as uh, yeah, all about Eve is definitely a, an excellent example of that. Yeah, and then. On a newer indie example, like Ballast, wasn't a horror movie, but it was a good movie from 2008. I mean, I love when you have an idea of where the film's going, and then we get to see it, how we got there, and then yeah. we get to continue forward with that scene. I think that's really cool. Now, in this particular uh-huh. film, I really think that that was done to help the um, the horror side or the thriller side of this movie, because... Yeah. Often in a horror movie, especially in a slasher type of film, and I think this is very, very loosely a slasher. It doesn't really fit the a really strict definition, but in a slasher film, a lot of times they'll try to put at least one kill up front so you know what kind of movie it is. It draws in, you know, people who are into slashers. I don't want to say the horror fans because... One will bust me for putting everybody in that blood and guts category that I'm in, <laughs> but I'm in that category. And so I think it wanted to set the tone and show that, okay, this movie gets kind of serious. And so just be patient and we'll lead you up to how we get there. Yep. Nice. Yeah. And I think I, that's I, interesting because a lot of horror movies, we as we know, open with the big kill. Um, and then, you know, and then we build up characters for a while. And so this is nice to... Um, I guess in a story where they don't necessarily have a kill from their from their monster, then they have to do that in a different way. Mm-hmm. Yes, and, and there were some scenes about that that I did like. There's one involving a um, a speakerphone. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought that was a a, a, a good scene. Um, one where uh, a character. Is it notices a video playing in yes. which um, uh, something that had happened at a time when they were incapacitated. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, Jason, I wanted to talk to you about that video okay. because this is exactly what I was talking about with the pyramid <laughs> last episode. Okay. Occasionally you have a video um, in this movie. We have two different distinct styles. One that is the security cameras and one that is a VHS tape that gets played back. And in both instances, we go into a first-person viewing of that footage. It's essentially, is found footage. We're going inside mm-hmm. the the footage within the movie. Yes, and that's a perfectly acceptable use of that. And so, that to me, that's an example of you could have a documentary crew. We could see what's on their tapes, but then we could still jump outside of them and and watch the movie from a third-person perspective. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, the, the, there is a scene, one of the things that, that was uh, kind of bothered me about it, uh, there's a scene where um, a, bunch of video cam- a bunch of surveillance cameras are being taken out, which allowed a character to sneak up mm-hmm. uh, on someone. But then later on, it's almost as if, I don't know if they were back or those cameras just didn't matter. Because um, what it's happened? Almost like they were able to, to, to. The surveillance was able to continue. It seemed what happened is number one, all of the cameras weren't knocked out, mm-hmm. and number no, it was two, just it the seemed, ones getting there. Yeah, it seemed as though the ones that were knocked out um, were replaced by another angle from another camera. Okay. So, mm-hmm. like when oh, one got knocked out, the television showed um, a, just you know a double, I guess, of another mm-hmm. area. I so, thought it went to another area of the building, though. When it when that happened, but maybe that's what I'm, it, seemed, that's what it seemed to be. Yeah, to yeah, me. it went mm-hmm. to like another a- area of the building, but then later on, oh, you're saying there's like he's a using those cameras again. He's using those cameras again to follow. Um, another car comes in, and, and the, he's see. following this other car, and he's able to see it pretty much everywhere that it goes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that one kind of kind of bothered, and and also, see, I don't know how far. You're worried about what, what Juan's going to say about the genre, and I'm sitting here trying to like go uh, the other way with spoilers again. Um, <laughs> Cody Clark's going to be ticked. Right. But, but, you guys uh, have this on our toes, man. So, someone notices, let's put this around, just, and I'm, without giving too much away, somebody notices an axe leaning against the door, but nobody really noticed all the cameras taken out along <laughs> the way. <laughs> well, the person was caught up in another activity, so yeah. That's true. And again, this this is my favorite scene in the movie, so I'm not going to complain about it too much. But. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. As far as the complaints about the setting, Josh, you said a parking garage is not that interesting to you. At least, at least in the way it was used, I thought. I don't know. I mean, we've seen like Die Hard. I feel like there yeah. are a lot of other options we could get out of. A structure like this. Um, I'll give you that. I, I will. I agree. I think they could have used the actual structure better. But I was thinking about why. Okay, why was this movie set here, and why would they do this? And by the way, Ajad is responsible for the story of this, and I everybody uh-huh. knows I love him. But anyway, yeah. I think that they set it there on Christmas Eve, at least, because on Christmas Eve, like everything is dead, right? I mean, they're in. It's a business structure complex or whatever, and everybody's going to be, you know, gone for Christmas. And and so that's the only other way, because otherwise a parking garage would not work in this setting. And I, so I guess my point is, sorry, I'm not being very clear. I think that's the reason this is ends up being a Christmas Eve movie, because they needed to have the structure to themselves for the most part. And, and really, that's the case. But um, do you guys believe that's true or not? No, I, I think for the Christmas setting, I think it, it from what you're saying, I think it works for that. I mean, I, I do tend to agree with John said it maybe wasn't used properly because you don't always I never got a full sense of the layout of this thing. You know, um, a lot took place on P2, obviously. Mm-hmm. All right. That was the level where where, um, you know, Wes Bentley's character was set up. That was where her car was initially. Uh, so a lot of it does take place on that level, but they do go to other levels as well. And I don't know. I never got a sense. Sometimes the garage looked like it was a smaller garage. Other times it looked like it had these really long corridors, like she'd be running <laughs> and just running and running and running in a really long. And other times it seemed more, it seemed smaller to me. 
I don't know. I never got a full sense of the layout of it. Mm-hmm. I agree with you that. Know? Yeah, you don't get a good idea of the geography, but maybe the running scenes that you're describing, you know, maybe that's a, a matter of running the depth of the garage versus the width of the garage. It's possible, yeah. But but then even there's a scene where two cars are facing each other and they seem to be a very long way away. Mm-hmm. True. And again, I think this is a movie that concentrates on um, the tension comes from our antagonist. Yeah. Um, which is fine, and he's a he's a good, pretty good antagonist. But I think there are a lot of movies and TV shows actually that use just the location of the parking garage in a much creepier way than this movie does. Mm-hmm. Like I, there are a lot of movies and TV shows I can think of where you go into the parking garage at night and you're terrified because yeah, right. you oh, know, yeah. something could happen from any direction. And I and it's weird that a movie that's completely set in that location doesn't have a few more of those types of scares because that's ironic. The antagonist is so big in this movie. And by big, you mean just prevalently present um, malicious. in terms of performance and just like active and present. You know, it's yeah. not uh-huh. like it's not that it could be anywhere type of a movie, you know? Right. 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 And, and let's talk about him, the Thomas character. I mean, I, I think Wes Bentley really does pull off a good nutcase. And what's weird is he's even funny at times. I think the it's awesome when the dialogue is like it's kind of humorously ironic sometimes. And, and that's pretty cool. I mean, I saw an interview with these guys that Dread Central did with Rachel and Wes Bentley. And mm-hmm. they were they were saying that, you know, he felt like his character, the humor just came a little bit from his cluelessness. So he wasn't necessarily trying to make jokes, but it just ended up being funny in the moment because of the things that his character would just say, because he's kind of an oddball. Hmm. I had trouble tracking him as a character in terms of like, are we supposed to think what kind of crazy is he? That was really hard for me to figure out. Is he super intelligent? At first he seems like he's just kind of a bumpkin type that might be really, you know, um, kind of slow, but then he turns Uh out to be a lot smarter than that. And so I don't know. It was kind of hard for me to figure out. I get that, but there's like a des- there's a desperation to him. It's like yeah. his loneliness is so powerful that yeah, it that makes him really well. Yeah, it makes him desperate and dangerous. What He's do you think? He's got a great line referring to that too, and and mm-hmm. and Wes Bentley plays it perfectly. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, well, he he did a, he he definitely did a good job in this movie. I mean, I thought he you are. Yeah, he is creepy. I, you, you got the sense from the first time they met up uh, before yeah. anything sort of broke out where he's kind of like, you know, there's things to be thankful for. It's almost like he's correcting her, <laughs> Yeah, you know, you know and being a little standoffish <laughs> even there, um, you know, for, for no real good reason. Mm-hmm. I also really liked the character of Carl played by Philip Aiken, and I just wish there'd been more of him. And I think there were there were a lot of there's a lot of potential with that character that we didn't really get. Mm-hmm. Totally agree with that. You, the night guard, you mean? Yes. The, 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 yeah, I agree. I agree. He, it, it seems like you know, he turns up at a different point, and uh, yeah, it would have been. I was I was expecting there to be a little bit more of him. At least maybe found out a little bit more about his fate. And he was just so likable too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, he was. But for yes, the, he definitely was. But for the most part, the listeners should know that if you haven't seen this, this largely depends. This is like a two-hander. I mean, it's really on Wes Bentley and Rachel Nichols to carry most of the oh, film. Yeah. There are very few other characters, and when we do get them, their parts are relatively small. But speaking of Rachel Nichols, um, 
I think she does fine in her performance. She actually reminds me a little bit of Jodie Foster uh, a couple months earlier in this same year, 2007. There's a Jodie Foster film called The Brave One, where she's kind of this, um, you know, tough heroine, you know, that's kind of steps up to the plate, so to speak. And 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 this this girl does that too. Now, I'm not saying that the she was inspired by the Jodie Foster performance, but it just reminded me of it. But the reason I think her character's problematic is because since there are so few characters and she's like solo in some of it, the screenplay requires her to talk to herself quite a bit. So we'll know what she's thinking and feeling. And that's always yeah. super annoying to me because it's like, um, yeah, people don't really narrate everything they're doing and thinking to themselves. So, so the camera will know, you know, that's just weird. Yeah, yeah. I agree. I saw an interview with the director, Frank Calfone, I think is his name. And um, it's French. So Frank Calfone. I don't know how to nice. pronounce it. That's pretty good. <laughs> but um, but he uh, he seemed like kind of a – my wife hates when I use this word. Seems like a bit of a douchebag in his interview. Um, <laughs> but but he's also the director of Maniac, the Maniac remake. And so oh. we now know he's a very talented artist. So in some ways this movie is worth seeing just to see his first film. And, and as again, as a first film, it's pretty impressive actually in its own mm-hmm. way. Well, yeah. Definitely. I mean it doesn't look like a first film. Uh-uh. No, not at all. But you, again, you had Alexander Aja um, was in well, there. I'm sure was very involved um, yeah. you know, to, to a point with it uh, as well. You know, and it, it was int- it's interesting because the story did engage me. I didn't think it was particularly original. Mm-mm. You know, I think everyone's going to have seen this kind of movie before. But yet, I think, like you were saying, it's really the characters and, the, and they did, uh, and at least with Wes Bentley from that standpoint, it definitely kept my attention Mm -hmm. and I was in tune with it, you know? Agreed. Yeah. Now, uh, I don't know if this is a good time to discuss this, you guys, but is Aja really all that? I mean, (laughs) high tension was an auspicious debut. There's no two ways about it. People love it. People hate it, but it was pretty incredible as a debut. I think people really liked the Hills have eyes remake. I really Um, like the Hills have eyes. remake. People really, People really like the uh, the Maniac remake. So this is a group of three guys basically who do do all three all these movies. Um, but Mirrors, P two, like- The Pyramid. I'm not sure their their original films are quite as in, are quite as good as their remakes. Um, and I think they they've really rode the the praise of High Tension for quite a while. Well, to, to a degree, like Mirrors, I thought the first half of it was was engaging. The yeah. scenes where, where Kiefer Sutherland is going through that building, mm-hmm. I thought, wow. And they had some, some moments that really uh, got the hairs in the back of my neck standing up yeah. at the beginning. I thought it devolved into something ridiculous by the end and fell, fell totally apart by the end of it. <laughs> but I thought at least up to the point where there's a character looking in a mirror – um, and it's something else looking back at them uh, up to that point. I thought it was, a, I thought it was a decent movie. Yeah. And I thought um, the pyramid was a decent movie and a lot of people complained about the ending of high tension and this movie's just okay. I mean, I think it's, it's good for what it's trying to do, but it's not very ambitious. And I, yeah. I don't know. I just, I'm not sure that there, oh, and then also um, the piranha yeah. movie. He did and, piranha. Too. Yeah, there 3D. you go. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So their remakes are kind of their best movies. Uh-huh. If you count maniac, Hills have eyes and, 
and I guess Piranha. But. Well, let me jump in and defend him because you know I love yeah. this guy. Uh, so and all three of these guys, I think we kind of have to. They're all they're all co-writers on each other's projects. Yeah, they're all producers on each other's projects. That that's true. That's true. Aja gets all the credit, but you know he only directed two of the movies. See, the fact that he directed The Hills Have Eyes, two thousand six. That film is very strong to me. It's just tremendous. I love that film, and that in and of itself, it's kind of like. Uh, I don't want to speak heresy on this podcast, but you know how after like John Carpenter did Halloween and people were like, that guy can bring it. And then he did the thing and people are like, that guy can bring it. You know, I mean, we've yeah. got, we've got a couple solid things here and he directed horns, which is um a little bit, you know, yeah. it, it's, uh, we, we talked about how it's kind of an oddity, a little bit of a fan fantasy film but it's still well made i mean i think he always does a good job but the fact that he has high tension and the hills have eyes under his belt those two things are going to make me always watch him with interest as senator palpatine says the horn horns is uh, based on a novel and the hills have eyes maniac these are remakes so i i'm just not so sure their original content is as mind blowing as we might think. I think we get, they get a lot, they get a lot of mileage off of the stuff. Cause you know, I mean, the real of eyes is great, but would it be, would they be able to have made that film having not had the original to, to use as a starting point? I don't know based on P2 and the pyramid, you know? Well, mm-hmm. I don't want to take, I mean, I can't take away anything from the original cause I love it too for the Hills have yeah. eyes, but that simple, that story is pretty simple. It's pretty straightforward. So it's not like, they had this mind-blowing high concept that they were, <laughs> you know what I mean? It, it was a pretty general yeah. type of story. Mm-hmm. I'm just, I'm just asking the hard questions, Jason. I know. <laughs> you know, it's funny because you're right. I usually perk up when I see his name associated with something, but then I, as you as you as you think about it, yes, I think he's, I think he's accomplished. I think he's good, and I think he's earned that kind of like, hey, he's. This is Alexander Aja. Let's check this out. Let's, let's yeah. see what he's got going on here. And I think he'll continue with that until he just completely goes off the rail. If he but, ever goes completely off the rail. But you know, I know Jason but, doesn't love Jason doesn't love Zack Snyder. Zack Snyder's remake of Dawn of the Dead is just as accomplished of, as Aja's remake. Yes. Of, yeah, yes, but that's his one. And his, and his Watchmen is tremendous. But, and that's what I'm saying is, is Snyder's original movies are way more ambitious and successful, I would say, than Aja's. Other movies like Mirror, original movies like Mirrors, and well, let's let's not underestimate the um, the creative talents that that writing takes care of. I mean, like his he wrote High Tension, he wrote The Hills Have Eyes, um, he wrote P two, he wrote Mirrors, and the Maniac remake. Now I know a lot of those were remakes, but there is a huge creative power that goes into writing, as you guys know. So and the Maniac the Maniac remake. Um, was very, very handled very interesting. Like the 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 way it was presented was fascinating. Like mm-hmm. how they how they took that almost yeah. you know, from that from that first person perspective. That was a very interesting way to do it. So even though it was a remake, I definitely give them credit for that. That that taking yeah. that sort of chance, you know. Um, but yeah, but I mean, you can't give it credit for 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 writing, Jason. But again, I don't know that P two is very original. You know, no. it, it's it's not it, it didn't strike me even as I was watching it and I was enjoying it. I liked the movie, but it was not striking me as as anything like, wow, I've never seen that before. Well, that's true. But think about at the same time. I mean, P2 is just a general 
horror movie release. It was thrown out there in November 2007. I mean, there are so many just just blase regular horror movies, and and so many of them are terrible, like absolutely terrible. And and this is actually a decent little film. I mean, it's not original, yeah. but it's respectable. And and it's it certainly is a decent little little film. And I, I I'm not going to disagree with that. But I don't think we should put him up on a pedestal by by saying, "Hey, thanks for not giving us crap." <laughs> well, if a guy brings it hard with like at least four great screenplays, well, I'll, I'll just say three. How about that? Um, High Tension, Hills Have Eyes, and Maniac. He brings it with that. He brings it with his directing on. Again, um, he had two co-writers. These other two guys on all of those projects. Yeah, and we're we're lumping them together, right? So okay, because they I must just want to make sure they get the same right credit and and they're a t- they're a team apparently mm-hmm. yeah. but um you know in the directing for the hills have eyes and high tension i mean that's that's some sharp stuff so i i don't know i mean who else i'm sure you guys can name lots of people but it's a short list let's let's think of how many other horror writer directors have that many impressive wins under their belt now, well, are I mean, we talking maybe, percentage of films or number of films? Like a, the percentage of their output. And are you talking like cur- current <laughs> contemporary directors? Yeah, yeah. Because I, mean, I would throw, I would obviously throw Jim Mickle out there, but he's done three movies. Right. But all three of them have been, and one was a remake, and two that were not. And well, all he three did, of them he's done four perfect. movies, but there, but only one, three were horror. Right, and I haven't seen. I the other one is is. I heard a podcast uh, discussing it, so I guess it's out there. Jason t- saw it. He didn't love it. Cold in July. Oh, really? It was kind of disappointing. It was like a 5.5. I mean, I agree. I think Jim Mickle's a great example. What I like mm-hmm. about Mickle is he has some really original content. And again, I'm not positive I see that with this group of guys. Um, Ty West, you know, I think he has some really interesting original content. I'm not sure I see that with this group of guys. I, this is going to be controversial. I know half the people listening to this podcast are going to hate these guys, but Adam Green, Adam Weingard, these guys I think <laughs> are at least bringing some original, you know, mm-hmm. stuff to the screen. Frozen, um, frozen. so i don't know i I think there are other guys i i I don't mean to rag on these guys too much they're they're putting out fine films they're better than a lot of the crap that's out there but yeah i did just want to poke a hole in them for a second and say are they really i mean people get very excited and you know i'm not sure they're on the level (laughs) and 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 i'm one of them i'm one of them i I, when i see alexandra aja's name i'm like oh that's something i definitely want to check out uh, but I don't disagree. He's with at least Josh. earned that, right? He's yeah, at least he's, earned, he's earned that. I'm curious what he's going to mm. do. And after P2, there's nothing to dissuade that. Next time I see his name on a movie, I'll, I'll oh, yeah, I want to check that out too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know? But yeah, to address your specific examples, I mean, I would personally put Aja above um, Mickle. Oh. Ooh. Personally. No, I wouldn't do that. I would. But I would put him behind Ty West because I, I do love Ty West. So, I don't know. You know, it's it's hard. I mean, that's it's really it's really challenging, actually. I mean, see, Jim Mickle is, wow, he is very good. I have to admit that, too. <laughs> I'm torn. Yeah, I mean, maybe they're just about a tie. Yeah, I put him above Jim Mickle. I'm not afraid, but I love Jim Mickle. I look forward to his films. I'll be, I'll be honest. But, I mean, Piranha 3D and Horns, come on. Did you and see Horns and- yet? 
No, but based on your review, I'm saying. And mirrors. Mirrors I don't like. So and Piranha 3D I is enjoyable, but it's not gr- it's not good. So I think I don't know. I mean those those are two entries at least for me that take it down quite a bit. Well, how do I how do I say that this isn't a great defense, but I do think that Aja has a little bit of whimsy in his filmmaking. I think that he strives to get um like some of the projects are a little more fun. I mean, because look at High Tension and Hills Have Eyes, pretty hardcore stuff. And yeah. then I think that with Piranha 3D and then Horns, and then if you look at his his stuff that's coming up directorially, like those are all lighter fare. And the new stuff doesn't even look like it's going to be horror, if I had to guess. But um, so it's almost like he's kind of shifting directions a little well, bit with his directorial stuff. I think he is, but he's still writing and producing with those other two guys who are, you know, right. just did the pyramid for instance. And they've got mm-hmm. a couple of the director of uh, P2 has two movies on his, on his docket. I bet you they're trying to follow the um, Blumhouse productions model. They're going for the James Wan career. Yeah. Like, I mean, I just, you know, the way that Jason Blum just cranks out these flicks. I mean, horror. Well, there's a couple other guys, James Wan and Scott Derrickson, I think are, tearing it up oh yeah scott derrickson i'm a big fan of him but anyways that was a great question and um sorry to derail the podcast for 45 minutes (laughs) no no we gotta you know i don't think that we um talk about horror directors and writers enough so i think that'd be i think it's very appropriate here on this podcast but just a couple other things on this film p2 and then we'll wrap this review up I think that as far as gripes, it's like, it's weird that the elevator, <laughs> let's just say, I'm not going to reveal what happens with the elevator, but there's there's kind of this like set piece that happens surrounding this elevator. And it's weird that the structure of the elevator is different at the top than it is at the bottom. <laughs> For example, I mean, it's very reliable at the bottom, and yet at the top, it's very um, unreliable. That's, that's a good point. And, and that's, that's very good point. hilarious to me. And then what drove me the most nuts about this film, my biggest gripe is, man, the jump scares with the dog. I mean, how many times a few are times, yeah, they well, the, once that? Once, and it works because you know what? I mean, the dog legitimately is something to be afraid of. You know, it's not... At least it wasn't the. At least it wasn't a screeching cat. At least it wasn't the woman in black where a raven comes flying out of a chimney or something. You know, at least it was something legitimately to be afraid of. Mm-hmm. But yes, it, it went uh, by the second time. You're like, okay, we get it. The dogs, right. the dogs, big and scary. Right, exactly. <laughs> and what's funny about that, though, I should mention. Well, it's uh, funny coming from you who loves Cujo so much. I do love Cujo, but <laughs> that is a tremendous siege narrative. Anyways, with this particular film, though, she, Rachel, the actress, she said, I guess she had a really hard time filming this. You know, she's kind of whining about it because um, she's very afraid of dogs and she had to work with a lot of Rottweilers. She said, I think they use like three or four. And she said that they did not like her, actually. And they liked Wes mm. Bentley as a, as a person, which is funny. And it's interesting because when you think of a key scene, how it was shot... It was shot in such a way that you don't necessarily see the two of them together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I wonder if that I'm guess that I'm guessing that had a what was a big reason why. Yeah, and that, yeah. So I I guess she felt pretty um threatened by them in in real life. So that was like genuine. 
And and then she had to like you know there's some water scene she's wet sometimes and she was cold I guess and all kind of things that she had trouble doing that were um, very uncomfortable for her so she was kind of just commenting on how it's unpleasant but I guess this is common for horror actresses probably right I would think so I I, I mean I'd I'd like her to try to complain to Marilyn Burns yeah exactly who had gone through Texas Chainsaw Massacre <laughs> and it's, you know. <laughs> with with cuts and bruises and running through thickets and you know, yes. jumping through a window for God's sake. Yeah, absolutely. And she, I'm guessing that wasn't breakaway glass that <laughs> she, uh, that Toby Hooper was using. Yeah, she was put through the ringer for sure. Oh, okay. Believe it or not, Roger Ebert actually gave this three out of four stars, and I, I like what he wrote. I'll just read a little excerpt from his review. He said. Yes, I know, it sounds like a formula slasher film, but it's actually done well. P2 benefits from being played about as straight as it can be, given the material. A movie like this depends on the invention in the screenplay. Angela does everything right, but it doesn't work. And when she somehow gets out a garbled call for help on 911, two cops turn up and they do everything right too. Often in thrillers... The cops are practically standing on a dead body and don't notice anything, but these guys are pros. He's absolutely right. They do, you know, in that regard, this is like everybody is doing everybody is doing the right thing, and it's just not working. Mm-hmm. That's actually uh, a, a note that I had in my mind, a mental note that I made while watching the movie that I really appreciated about this movie. Actually, um, I'm glad you read that. It reminded me because that that really knocks it up a lot in my estimation. You know, we all and Roger Ebert again is famous for uh, the phrase "the idiot plot" for coining that term. Mm-hmm. Um, I love that these characters do everything right, and then the hor- horrific things still happen. That's yeah, uh, something that I really, really appreciate, and that I wish more movies did. Same, yeah. And there is another. There is a scene here uh, involving something that always, always gets me: a scene involving a fingernail. Oh, yeah. There's something about that that just, <laughs> oh, it, it just, oh, uh, it gets me every time. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I totally agree. Oh. And oh. you think, I think about some of the other movies like that, and it's just, oh. Yeah, brutal. All but, right. Um, but then again, it's interesting that this is a, a technically, a, I guess, a French film, obviously, for, for mm-hmm. its makers. Dead End was another French film. And, you know, when, when you think about these, I mean, I think of like the French, like extreme cinema of recent years where the high tension, the inside, the frontiers, uh, martyrs, obviously mm-hmm. these like really intense movies that you think, OK, that's where the, the, the French cinema is. But obviously this movie, what am I trying to say here? This movie, um, Dead End, are ones that uh, they're doing other things right as well, you know? Yes. It's not just that extreme stuff that, that, that they become really sort of famous for. They are doing other things uh, that work as well, mm-hmm. um, which I like, I, I like to see. I just think for out of France, there have been just some awesome horror movies in, the, in, of, of the, in this new millennium to, to, to come out of France. Yeah, I totally agree. You know, I mean, for a while there, it seemed like they were the only ones doing the extreme stuff. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, that's right. And when Doc, just to clarify, when he said that, in essence, it's a French film, because the, the filmmakers are French, but like it was released in the States, of, of course. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yes. with America. I mean, same with like Dead End. Dead mm-hmm. End was was 
shot in English, American actors, right. all American actors, but it was a French film. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this was shot in Canada. Mm-hmm. This one was shot in Canada? Okay. Yeah. Okay, yeah, I, was, I, or, I guess Toronto, once again, standing in for New York. <laughs> right, right, always. All right. <laughs> yeah. Yep. As, as it does. And then I, I guess Maniac would also fit in. The new um, Maniac would fit into that category as well. Mm-hmm. You know, where there's interesting, very interesting things, um, I think, come, well, you know, I'm saying coming out, but I mean, these are, these ones are a little bit older. I guess Maniac's the most recent one. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so I don't know. I just thought that was kind of, uh, I thought that was kind of interesting. Totally agree. All right, guys. Well, let's wrap up this review here. As for ratings, I'll come in. For P2 from 2007, I give it a 6 out of 10, and I call it a, a rental. I think it's worth seeing, especially for a Christmas horror film. Um, it's set on Christmas Eve, much like Dead End, which you just mentioned. And so this is a good Christmas Eve movie if you want some horror. And it's, um, you know, I would call this a, a horror thriller. You know, it's a lot of people just refer to this film as a straight up thriller, but I still call it a horror. So, and and my six rating is like right in the middle of the road. It's just like a a good, acceptable movie. That's where I am. So, what do you say, Doctor Shock? I'll go a little bit better. I'll say six point five. I'll say it's definitely worth a rental. Um, I had forgotten that Dead End was set on on Christmas Eve, but you know what? That movie could have been set any time. Mm-hmm. You know, it could have been Fourth of July. It didn't make any difference. This one does take advantage of Christmas. Mm-hmm. to a degree where it would fit into, um, you know, th- this would be if you said, okay, list out horror movies for, for Christmas that have a Christmas theme. This one, I, do- I think, fits neatly into that. You know, it's not it's not sort of, you know, we were going over, I, I, I have this book about um, Christmas movies, and some of the ones they have in there are a little bit stretching it. You know, that, that, that it's like, okay, well, it's a very slight connection to Christmas at best. Right. This one, I think, does take advantage of it. So this is one that you, you know, if you're looking for Christmas movies to sort of give you the chills, this would be one to check out. Uh, Wes Bentley is, is a big part of the reason to check this one out as well. Uh, but overall, I do think that there are some strong scenes in it. The, the gore scene is wow <laughs> you know yeah um a, a lot of other movies wouldn't show it quite the way they showed it in this one mm-hmm. so i was impressed by that um and you know the, the the weaknesses we've gone over but i think the strengths do outweigh them so i'm going to say 6.5 nice okay wolfman josh there was one scene i wanted to discuss that we haven't yet um and uh it was in a scene it was the video scene i guess so we did bring it up but i didn't go into uh-huh. It as much as I wish I'd had. And um, to me, this is actually a great argument for the inclusion of nudity in filmmaking. <laughs> I think um, the creepiness of that factor, and I don't mean to be a pig about it. I'm, I'm seriously like, I think the film would have been a better movie if there had been brief nudity during the video scene. I think yeah. it would have been creepier. I think there would have been more tension. I think her character could have, would have um, been a lot more scared. 
and, and uh, it would have and it would have made him more frightening than than we were originally anticipating. Yes, and it, and it would have felt more realistic too, which I yeah. don't think it feels super realistic the way it's portrayed. Yeah, because he's right. a little bit too gentlemanly, right? Exactly, <laughs> so, so, I mean, gentlemanly, not not really gentlemanly. <laughs> just but, joking. Oh. Yeah, I, 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 but yeah, well, he's so, not no, really I, gentlemanly, but still, what he does is not, you know, with with the ability to do whatever you want, what he's doing. I'm not saying it has to go super, f- like a lot further, but I think no, no, not at all. I mean, you know, of just brief nudity, I think honestly would have made it a better movie. Um, mm-hmm. Like from a storytelling point of view, not from a horn dog point of view. <laughs> <laughs> the other thing I just want to say is that Elvis song is so great. I mean, it's a song that I've never really listened to that much. I've heard it before. But this is the first time, you know, when I heard it in this movie, I, I thought, oh, I've heard that version of Blue Christmas before. It really is featured prominently, and it it made me love that song. I, it's such a unique <laughs> take on a Christmas song, and yeah, it really is. So cool! I love the backup vocals on that. Um, mm-hmm. This movie was a huge bomb when it came out. It was the it is the second worst opening weekend ever. Um, uh, you know when it came out, it was that, the second worst ever for that, a very wide release. It's that title telling you, yeah. And um, it got a 37 on Metacritic, a 36 on P2. And I'm here to tell you that it's not that bad a movie. Those guys, no. the critics are wrong and the audiences were wrong like I was to not go see it. It's a fun little movie. I come in with Jason. I think it's a six strong rental for me. I think um, I am going to rate all the movies on this episode on two scales, though. I think as a movie, it's a six. I think as a Christmas movie in terms of its uh, inclusion of Christmas I'm only going to give it a three. I don't think it includes Christmas as much as I'd like for a movie I'm going to watch, say, on Christmas Eve. I, I think it's wow. it's in there. It's a mild background element, but it's not um, a strong uh, – it's not in the forefront. So. Even even with that blue Christmas scene? I would watch it in the month of December for sure. If you get this, you know, <laughs> depending on when you hear this podcast. I'm serious. And honestly, I bought the DVD for the, our review. I'm going to put this into my – Christmas rotation along with Black Christmas and you know all my other my legitimate you know Christmas movies. Mm-hmm. It's it's it, it's worth screening in December, but um but its actual Christmassy content is in the three range for me. See what did it for me though is how many shots of the Christmas lights are there are. You are reminded thematically though all the time that it's Christmas Eve. And she's that's supposed the, to be uh-huh. at her family's, and and that would have like I would have liked to see her family play a bigger role, and that would have played into the Christmas theme, I think, a lot better. Yeah, yeah, they could have gotten us out of the garage that way, but right, you know, or gotten more people into the garage one way or the other. Yeah, for that matter, yes. But I mean, I would say this film is uh, first a thriller, second survival horror, and third a Christmas movie. <laughs> <laughs> okay, nice. Okay, so that's our review of P two. And we all say, check it out. Let us know what you think. And at this point, we'll move into our feature review of Christmas Evil, a.k.a. You Better Watch Out. But I heard him exclaim as he drove out of sight, Merry Christmas to all, and to all a good night. Christmas Evil, a.k.a. You Better Watch Out, a.k.a. Terror in Toyland. Ooh, scary. <laughs> What's your favorite title of this film? Uh, honestly, 
uh, You Better Watch Out. And that happens to be the director's favorite title as well. I mean, when I screened the film, the package said Christmas Evil, but the titles in the actual movie said You Better Watch Out. So. Yeah, and, and he and he said that, actually. He is really kind of lamenting that because um, <laughs> he said that it really... He means the title to be, it should be, you better watch out, but the distributors always make it uh, Christmas evil for whatever reason, but that's the writer-director, Lewis Jackson, who prefers you better watch out, right? Because it, it's clever. It comes from that line in um, the Santa Claus is coming to town song. Yeah, I mean, I think you better watch out. I mean, this is kind of goes back to our chopping mall killbots discussion. I actually think Christmas evil is the better title, but I think you better watch out as a better descriptor of what the movie is. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think Christmas Evil is brilliant, actually, as a title. But I, but I actually consider this movie to be you better watch out. Christmas Evil is brilliant, and I wonder what percentage of people, not of our listeners, of course, because they're all so smart. But, but I wonder what percentage of people hear that and don't realize it's like Christmas Eve. Oh, yeah, right. Like, yeah. get it. I no, I, I'm just kidding. I know you get it, but I'm, I'm, I'm just I'm just saying that is brilliant and it's very good. Now, Terror in Toyland, that's pretty lame. That is a terrible title and gives you a completely wrong perception of what this movie is all about. This movie opens up, and I will say it closes perfectly. <laughs> we'll get to that a little later. Yes, we will. But the opening scene of this movie is exactly what I want in a Christmas horror movie. Okay. It starts out with a mother, her two sons sitting on the stairs, a beautiful Christmas scene laid out, Christmas tree lights on, milk and cookies awaiting Santa Claus who comes down the chimney and, uh, and the, <laughs> the children giggle on the steps as they watch Santa partake of his, his cookies and his milk and, and everything's going wonderfully. And the, the children are nestled all snug in their beds when they hear another sound down downstairs. So one of the little boys or do both of the little boys go, is it just Harry? Yeah. One of the yeah, little Harry boys goes down. Yeah, he climbs out of bed and he goes down to see what's going on downstairs. Mm-hmm. And he sees mommy kissing Santa Claus, so to speak. Um, <laughs> and he's kissing her in a very precarious area. When, uh, when little Harry comes down the stairs. So it's a, uh, it's pretty explicit. Um, right away in this movie and probably more explicit than anything else in the film. Well, um, it, yeah, there's a lot of leg rubbing. We can say that for sure. Well, yeah. But I think, uh, <laughs> I think Santa's, you know, going to town and, and, um, <laughs> and, and it's the perfect psychological setup for our characters. What is what I, what I mean to say, you know, we have movies like silent night, deadly night, that maybe you know that go much much further than this, mm-hmm. and maybe are more um, realistic as to the type of incident that might uh, turn someone into a psychopathic killer. Right. But for in terms of a Christmas goofy eighty slasher, this is exactly what I want the inception point to be. Right. For our, for our killer, it's so much fun. It's so Christmassy. <laughs> It, yeah, and and let's get into that really because for me, yeah. the most exciting thing about this movie, like the real value in Christmas Evil, the film is yeah. is this psychosis that happens. And I want to kind of, I mean, I'm sure I won't be Kyle Bishop level here, but I want to kind of Kyle Bishop approach it here. I I love that 
the I saw mommy kissing Santa Claus thing. I mean, if you think about, if you try to psychoanalyze how that might affect a kid, it's like, you know, Santa Claus is a bringer of gifts. He he delivers oh, things yeah, to does. you, right? <laughs> Santa delivers big time. Well done. Yeah, so that's what a child's like understanding of Santa Claus is. But what happens if Santa Claus is taking something from you, which is for a child, their most important thing in the world is their mother. So I think that's very interesting. And and they try to suggest in this film that That's it's good. it's this emotional, you know, it's this intimacy with Santa Claus that he witnessed with his mother that really kind of flips him out. But yeah, but the theme, but the undercurrent to this film is that he is slowly but surely he is taking on the persona and becoming Santa Claus, and that yeah. that's. That's my favorite part about this film. Now, now let's talk about that, if you don't mind. I don't want to talk too much, so jump in if you have something to say. Do you have something to say so far? Because I don't want to just ramble. I got all kinds of things to say. I think you're you're doing a wonderful job. I agree with everything you said. And um, to me, these first moments where he's, quote unquote, becoming Santa Claus mm-hmm. are the most terrifying thing in the movie as well. Um, I think it does go a direction that's that's super interesting still, Mm -hmm. but not quite as interesting to me as if it had followed the original kind of thrust um, post opening scene. And I don't know if you know what I'm talking about. Should I expound upon this? Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. We can be a little more. I mean, so basically you've got Harry now as an adult, right? And it's pretty obvious right away. He's a bit of a damaged person. He has not coped well with, um, his childhood experience, right? Yeah. And um, this guy is spying on the neighborhood children with binoculars. <laughs> creepy is all get out. It is creepy. And keeping a list of the bad boys and girls. Yeah, and writing a, down their, their offenses. Yeah. And, and the things that they're doing wrong and the things that they're doing right in two separate think, books. One of the funniest was, was it like bad personal hygiene or something like that? <laughs> yeah, the, the kid that was uh, addicted to uh, nudie magazines. Yes, he has bad yeah. personal hygiene. That's hilarious. <laughs> right. But, um, you know, pretty soon in the film, we see Harry interacting with these children. And it's so unsettling because, you know, of, first of all, of his person, because of his personality. And secondly, because we know he's intimately involved in their lives and keeping track of their, of their actions. Mm-hmm. And he follows one of these little kids home and, and he spends a lot of time pe- actually peeping in windows in the early parts of this movie. Um, which again, I feel I find this extremely creepy, extremely unsettling. And there's a scene with mud um, in this film. Do you know what you're seeing? I'm talking about. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Honestly, I was terrified. I was scared out of my mind where this movie was going to go at that point. And again, I do like where it eventually goes, but that the possibility of where it could have gone there was 10 times scarier than um, where it eventually did go. <laughs> right. Well, and, and let's talk about this whole um, voyeurism aspect of Santa Claus. If you, if you really think about it, I mean, what we're told about Santa is he sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're <laughs> awake. I mean, it's like he knows everything you're doing. He knows your behaviors. And and if you think about that and take it to its logical conclusion, it's like, um, you better watch out. Yeah, you better watch out. And I'm kind of freaked out by that. You know what I mean? So that's a cool concept 
I mean, I think a lot of people in the world, non-horror fans, they get really ticked off. Like, if you remember when um, Silent Night, Deadly Night was released, I mean, there were so many people that flipped completely out that they made (laughs) Santa Claus a killer in that movie. And it's just so offensive to people because it's the antithesis of what Santa Claus is. He's a giver and not a taker. But, man, that's it's hilarious to me because the more you think about him, the more creepy it is. But... Anyway, go ahead. I don't want to. No, absolutely. And he was this Santa Claus at first seemed like he was going down the path of a of a Svarta Pete or a or a Krampus. I thought he was going to be seriously punishing some of these bad little boys and girls. Luckily, we don't really go that direction. And he really does. Harry really does kind of try to, in his in a very misguided way, uphold the values of Santa Claus. Right. And, and that's one of the creepy things. I actually, I got to give credit where credit's due. I, I first heard Hellhunter observe this um, <laughs> from Terror Troop. He, he said on Planet Macabre, he said that it's interesting that you know, this guy, it isn't beneath him to kill somebody. I mean, it, he's a killer. And yet he still has a sense of this like uh, naughty and nice concept and what what little deeds are offensive or non-offensive. And that's what's so fascinating about this movie um, in terms of trying to, and I know you do this, Jason, try to relate to your protagonist. Mm -hmm. It really toys with you throughout because you do really do want to kind of get behind what this guy's doing and then it just keeps pulling the rug out from from underneath you. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you know, every other scene. It's it's very it's a very I felt very conflicted yeah. um about my feelings for Harry during the course of this film, you know. It, and I, I think again it's a reason why a movie like a, a title like Christmas Evil or Terror and Toyland don't really fit this film as well because there's a lot of humanity in this movie. Yeah. And there's a lot of um empathy that you could feel for Harry if you were so inclined. Yeah. So if I can put you in the the shrink's hot seat here, (laughs) Wolfman Josh, for a minute, I think that you feel conflicted, as did I, because we are still a little bit conflicted about Santa Claus. And here's why. This is really my favorite part of this film. I I think that this character slowly wants to become a real Santa Claus because it's his way of trying to make the world right. Um, yes. And so his psychosis, I think, stems out of, of course, the the mother thing and the intimacy was the um, kind of the catalyst. But I think it stems out of him dealing with the fact that Santa, and I got to say this in a whisper because my kids are nearby, isn't real. So and, and, <laughs> and this can cause some real conflict in people because the notion of Santa Claus, who is this benevolent and loving being who is always watching you and bestows gifts upon you. If you believe in him, that sounds a lot like the notion of God who is also a benevolent and loving being who is always watching you and bestows gifts upon you if you believe in him. And so when people kind of come to this little crisis in their lives at whatever age you were, like six, seven, nine, or for me, 15, just kidding. But um, when, when you come to this crisis of you learn the truth about it, it's really kind of hard. And so I think this character is trying to make things right by actually becoming a real Santa Claus. Yeah, I mean, I'm definitely someone who 
I have a very believing heart. Um, and not just in the goofy way when we were talking about like Bigfoot and stuff in our <laughs> previous episode. Right. But, I, 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 but, you know, there to me, there's a certain honor and belief mm-hmm. and faith. And so um, it was really hard for me to let go of the notion of Santa Claus. Actually, I had a, I had a legitimate crisis of faith. Um, yeah. When I let go of the notion of Santa Claus in my my own life, right? Was it due to his parallels to God? And I mean, I think it was. I don't think it was. That was definitely wasn't a conscious parallel. Mm-hmm. You get a movie like Miracle on Thirty Fourth Street, where we're taught the people who are quitters are the people who stop believing, right? And mm-hmm. I think that's. And I think you know, we 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 hear that type of rhetoric in church as well. Um, if you don't believe, you're doing something wrong. And so I think with like Miracle on 34th Street, the lesson is like the adults have given up, but the pure children are the ones that still have mm. the ability to believe. Interesting. And so and I think I have, I have sought to believe a lot for a large portion of my life because I've felt that there was honor in that. You know what I mean? And mm-hmm. I think for better or for worse, I mean, there are definitely negative sides to that. I think that, you know, a blind belief can lead to terrible things and has led to terrible things in this world. But I think, you know, there is, you know, there's also something to it that has always appealed to me. Um, in another sense, um, vigilantism, (laughs) you know, I think, I think people who believe in doing right and who kind of believe in, and I believe in the gray area. I'm a, you know, I, I live in the gray areas, but I do believe in, in a right and wrong. Um, if really pressed, and I, or at least I believe in these larger notions of right and wrong in the universe, you know? And so I think um, people who really care about that, who have a real, uh, who that kind of that moral center is important to, um, who maybe the rule of law is important to, I want to see the law respected. I think these people, and I include myself in that to some degree, also really um, – kind of fall for the, the the ideal of vigilantism because you you want to see other people live up to the values that you kind of hold yourself. And if you if you feel like the government or society is capable of kind of living this higher code and they're not living up to living up to it, you kind of envy those who um, or, or admire those like a Batman. I'm not talking about like crazy sick sickos, but, <laughs> right. but, but people, you know, Batman is a crazy sicko, I guess, to some degree, mm-hmm. but people who are standing up for what they believe is right. And that is appealing, um, you know, to a certain degree. And I, you know, and this is getting way off topic for this conversation, but <laughs> it's great. I, I, love I, it. I think there's an interesting line to be drawn between social activism, um, and terrorism. And I think Harry rides that line. Um, I think he (laughs) is doing something that he believes is right. And he is taking it to a very wrong headed place. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so, yeah, I was very torn. I'm not just because of the belief aspect of, of Santa Claus that probably doesn't ring true for me and kind of like a, on the forefront of my mind at this stage of my life, it's just not an issue as it may have been when I was, 15. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, definitely that idea of like, I'm glad he's sticking it to these guys who are bad. I'm glad he's sticking up for the little guy. I'm glad he's taking care of these children. I'm glad that he's, (laughs) he's not afraid to tell the executives of his company that they're pieces of crap. (laughs) At the same time, he handles it in the worst possible manner. Yeah. And that's death and destruction, man. It turns (laughs) into a horror show. 
You said so many great things there. Like I was like a million things I wanted to say, but the forefront of <laughs> what I was inspired to say was um, it reminds me of how one nation's terrorist is another nation's like revolutionary, a revolutionist, and and that's that's interesting <laughs> that because I it hadn't even occurred to me that he is the whole vigilante aspect to this Santa Claus character, and I I love that. I mean, he is kind of the what is it? The the judge, jury, and executioner, so to yeah, speak. He's the equalizer, man. <laughs> the equalizer. I love that. So, um, no, that's good stuff. Now, we should, Wolfman Josh, lest we misrepresent this movie for our listeners in case someone hasn't seen Christmas Evil from 1980. Yes. We are doing a lot of outside work for this film. Because yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's all there. I mean, the, the, the actions are all there. It's it's there, it's, but it's all in there. But but to the like, if you're just and and I don't Look, say when this I, when I broke apart Choppy Mall, I was trying really hard to find something in that text. <laughs> and I could tell that nobody else was going to help me on that one. So I was yeah. really struggling. Yeah. Well, I'm not. I'm not struggling here. This is this is all in there. I, I'm with you. I agree. And and Chopping Mall is. Uh, Whew, that's pretty hollow, you know, like yeah. th- there's not a lot there, but I agree with you. But I'm just saying, if you listener out there, if you're the type of horror fan, that's like, why are these guys always like overanalyzing everything? Just watch the freaking movie and like blah, blah, blah. If you, if you happen to be that kind of horror fan, which is fine, then what Get you're, you're going to see. Get out <laughs> no no because i i love that kind of fan too i really do because i sometimes i get bored this film oh, is sorry did i bore you <laughs> no, no 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 you didn't but i'm just saying sometimes films that are like you know too heady or whatever like I, I i don't know but this film is pretty slow it's pretty drawn out there are and correct me if i'm wrong about this wolfman there are basically two kills in this movie one at the first one is at 51 minutes, 51 minutes into the film. And the second one is like an hour and seven minutes. So they're about what, what is that? 15 minutes apart or something. You know what? If you hadn't said that, I wouldn't have, I would have said this movie is full of slashes because there is a lot of tension in this movie. There um, is, there is. I, there are a couple of scenes and I think for me, anything with children now being a parent, like it's hard to get that out of my head. Like yeah. I, I, you know, David, um, one of our listeners recently gave us his feedback on our review of the Babadook. And, um, you know, he was like, it was good. It wasn't quite as terrifying as you guys, you know, said it was <laughs> for me, the peril that that child is in and the fragility of his antagonist mm-hmm. is so it is the most terrifying thing I can imagine on the planet earth way scarier than any monster, any, you know, Michael Myers, you know, any disease, the idea of, you know, that, that young boy's vulnerability mm-hmm. and his aggressors, um, loose cannonness. Yeah. Loose cannonness. Well said. <laughs> yes. <laughs> to me, honestly, that is the scariest thing imaginable. Okay. And so let's and underscore so, that. I want to make sure I got you. So because you're saying because a child is so full of faith and innocence and believing and they're completely vulnerable and helpless and especially since they have this idealized vision of of Santa Claus as this just 
the best person in the world to them mm-hmm. that they are so um so like uh in danger because this guy who's dressed up like Santa Claus is actually a very fragile minded psychopath. Yeah. Well, I mean, I wouldn't have put it like you did, but that's well put. I, I would just say oh, okay. a child in peril is the scariest thing to me. Oh, okay. I thought you and, were just talking specifically on well, this. Well, I was film. talking about specifically the Babadook, actually. Oh, okay. The Babadook. Okay. Gotcha. But, but now referring back to this film, I think just the idea of a child in per- peril is, is a great scare tactic for me. And I think, um, and so there, there are several scenes where um, that's at least hinted at. And again, especially at the beginning, um, where I'm very fearful of this idea, it, that was enough to string me along for quite a while. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one of the main um, kind of driving forces of this film is Harry wanting to bring toys to children in an orphanage. Based on how the film starts out, I'm not entirely sure that Harry is trustworthy with this mission. <laughs> you know, I'm not sure what he's going to do to the bad little boys and girls. And so yeah. there was a lot of tension for me watching those scenes. Right. Um, even though, you, as you say, yeah, I guess there aren't that many slashes in this movie. In my visceral experience, I felt like this is, you know, this is a great 80 slasher. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it, it is interesting. I mean, because it, it didn't feel slow to me is what I'm saying. Sure. And, and see for people like, um, especially people like you, I mean, you have a lot more patience with film than I do. And I know Dr. Shock does as well. Um, but for, for people like me, I get a little bit impatient, but there is a lot of, there's a lot of character work in this. There's a lot of character development and I'll be honest with you. The guy who plays Harry, the Santa, his name is Brandon, um, Maggart, I believe is how you pronounce Mm -hmm. it. Uh, by the way, he's actually the the father of Fiona Apple. Did you know that? In real life? Yeah, in real life. He is Fiona Apple's dad. That's hilarious, right? Wow. But anyway, I, I've heard people rag on this guy's performance, but actually, I think that he gives a, a pretty solid performance because he there is an instability about him. When you see him, I mean, it's a little hammy. It's, it, you know, sometimes it's a little late on, a little bit thick. But I tell you, you watch him and you're like, um, that guy, I think he probably is kind of a nut job. I mean, he looks he looks like he's kind of unraveling and coming part at the seams. Did you think that? He's not a typical movie leading man type. No. He's not attractive. He's not um, super charismatic. Um, and yeah, he seemed to overact a bit in this film. And so... Toward the beginning, yeah, I was not on board with him as our lead. I was a little, he was my least favorite part of the film hmm. um, for quite a while in the film. As it progressed, he completely won me over. I loved him by the end of the movie. I was so happy with him as a mm-hmm. as an actor, as a casting choice. I, I have a feeling I loved this movie a lot more than you did, and I don't know <laughs> yeah. why. I, I, I really can't put my finger on why I loved it. Yeah. Um, but it, yeah. I, I thought he was great. Well, that's well. it. Well, I mean, you might be surprised to know, like, um, even though, see, this is funny because there are horror fans that's like, they give this a pass because of the nostalgia factor. It's an 80s, you know, slasher type movie. So they, you know, they, they appreciate it. And then there, are, I've heard a lot of horror fans just bag on this movie because they think it's boring. But even Leonard Maltin, who's a famous film critic, he gave this three stars and he called it a, a sleeper hit. It did. Three out of ten. 
Uh, no, no. <laughs> no, not at all. I, I believe he does a four star system too, if okay. I'm not mistaken. And so that's pretty high for him. And he appreciates this film and, and ended up bec- becoming kind of a, a cult favorite. And I think part of that is because it is an oddity. It's a weird little movie, if we're being honest. Right? Oh, yeah. It's a weird movie. I mean, some of the things we haven't talked, I mean, there are a lot of downsides for me. Um, see, that's not even true. There are a lot of things that take it down in scale from being a, a quote in quotes, good movie, like the generic toy factory, the generic toys they're making, um, you know, the production design and stuff like that. It's not, it's not a particularly appealing. Mm -hmm. um, I don't love the camera angles they choose, but it, it casts a spell on me. Like this has a, you know, unlike chopping mall, which I understand how people can have, kind of just a general 80s nostalgia for that film. This movie has something special in my opinion. This has a little something extra. And I think I think you're right to call it an oddity. It is a weird film. Um, but I think whatever it is that's making it an oddity, um, for me, is making it just something really special. It, it's it's the type of film the people that, you know, gets the name a cult film. And I think mm-hmm. that's for a reason, you know, it, it has, it's the type of film you kind of like <laughs> hold dear despite its, its weirdness or maybe even because of its weirdness. Well, well, and I like what you said there because, you know, as I think about it, it's the kind of horror film that it's like, yeah, I could see watching this every year at Christmas time, but in the way that you would put it on kind of in the background, at a little Christmas gathering with your friends who like horror movies, you know, it'd be kind of fun to have on in the background just cause it is kind of bizarre, but, um, you know, it, it's just not because I guess I would classify this as a, a drama first. I mean, this is mostly a drama to me. Would, do you agree with that? Or do you think that's, I guess you're, I guess you're right. I mean, it's, it's, it's funny because it didn't play that way to me watching it. And I'm going to say this is I, this was my first viewing of the film. This isn't a film that I have any nostalgia for. So, mm. I mean, I do I do have a, it does have that 80s charisma that appeals to me or that like it feels like a 70s, 80s movie. Sure. Yeah. Late 70s, early 80s. And so it, it was generally appealing to me for that reason. But I, it's not a movie I'd ever seen before. So mm-hmm. um, it worked. It really worked on me. I get you. Yeah. Well, I just want to. I guess underscore that the fact that yeah I mean it is a drama and I do think it has it's effective but in in terms of like the the horror scene it, it would be one of those movies you'd say it has horror elements because it has a, just a couple of horror scenes and um, the kills are you know you could count the people who die on one hand but you know that's that's okay I mean it doesn't always have to be tons of kills and like you said there's enough there you know with the subtext of the film that it's kind of interesting i just i just honestly don't think that a lot of people will wrestle with the text as much or work with it as much i guess but you know like everybody loves silent night deadly night right this is a a better movie man i mean i i think silent night deadly night has better kills all the way through all that stuff is better in execution but the actual story of this is better. This guy is perfect. And like the character, <laughs> the character work here is exactly what you want from both a horror movie and a slasher movie. Now, yeah, I mean, it, it's like I wish I could take the kills 
from Silent Night, Deadly Night and put them into this movie. Okay, well, that's well said. I agree. I mean, yeah, in terms of story, this has definitely got a stronger story. And, you know, what's interesting... And the performance. I mean, you get... This is a movie... We talked about this in our proto-slasher episode. You know, when it gets to the slasher, oftentimes we have our mass killer, which we do in Silent Night, Deadly Night. In this film, it's like a peeping Tom psycho type of film where we're with our we're with our killer mm-hmm. i guess not psycho as much but like a peeping tom where we're with we're with our killer and so and and it works in some ways that it works better than peeping tom i think <laughs> I, wow. I, kind of, I, I i don't know maybe i'm over maybe i'm overdoing it in my own mind but i think just i was so caught off guard by this film um <laughs> yeah i mean i'm surprised to, to hear how much you appreciate it because i mean I think there are things to appreciate about it. And I will say, I will side with you to the extent that I think a lot of people are too dismissive of this film. I think they, um, they just kind of like let it go. Like it's just some kind of joke, but let me just tell, tell you about the director here. Um, Lewis Jackson, people give him crap. He was the writer and director for this and he has not done much. Okay. He's got, three director credits on IMDb, but I saw an interview with him and you can actually um, find it online, which is pretty interesting. There's a a video on YouTube. This Week in Horror is what they're called and they're based out of LA and they have, um, you know, different people on their show and they they do a nice job, you know. So they have him on their show and they talk to him about this film, which is pretty fascinating. So I learned a few things about it. He said that when he was a young man, you know, particularly when he made this film, he was very arrogant and cocky and he he thought of himself as an Orson Welles type. And so he didn't necessarily take this film and peg it and say, I'm going to make a horror film. He was trying to appeal to many people and kind of cross the genres, you know, and I think that's visible here. And, And there are some things like in the first kill, you can see there's some definite psycho inspiration, even in the the soundtrack and stuff. I think that's pretty interesting. Um, So anyway, I liked the guy. I saw his interview and I was really impressed. And even though this this will sound really (laughs) funny, I think he's an artist. I mean, I really think that he thought about this film, Josh, the stuff you're talking about and appreciating. I mean, this guy was putting it in there on purpose. I mean, he was really trying to get there. Like, for example, there is a mob scene later in the film, and his initial plan in the screenplay was to have a helicopter shot where the people were kind of like, I guess, funneling in, and he wanted it to look like blood, like circulation in a heart, like going through the vessels, like the people moving through the audience, which I'm like, wow, that's pretty ambitious. You know, so this guy has like an artistic flair to him. Um, so I just wanted to say that, and we'll talk about the ending here in a little bit, but the initially the budget for this film was 450000 And then two days before the shooting, they ended up getting this famous cinematographer and they got his bill, and Josh, get this, his lighting bill was... 250,000 <laughs> for his lighting. That's insane. So Jackson had to go back to the producers and, and tell them that the budget was now 700,000. And then they had other problems too. Like for example, they hired this girl to do the sound effects, like the sound design for the film. And you know, it a long time had passed and they hadn't really 
heard anything from her or seen it. And she was blowing the budget. The money they were giving her, she was blowing it on cocaine. So so that was terrible. They had to replace her at the last minute. So, you know, I've heard people actually in other reviews, I've heard them criticize the sound design to this film. And unfortunately, you know, they had to just kind of throw something together. So that explains that. And then with the ending, which again, we'll talk about here shortly, that came down partly to just budget restrictions because there was no way they were getting more money. They were already way over budget. And so, um, you know, this guy was kind of in a pickle. He had his back against the wall. They had to pay people off in New Jersey because they were making a non-union film. So, you know, I'm talking like gangster types. They had to like pay them in order to get, you know, permission to still shoot the film. So this guy had a lot of hurdles to get over and we still come out with this film. What do you yeah, think? It's interesting. It's, it's, it's interesting. So have, have you had to do that yet? Have you had to pay off um, the mob to make one of your movies? Not yet. Okay. Not yet. <laughs> okay. Well, I, I couldn't tell you if I did. You're still young yet. So, I mean, yeah. the day may come, but um, mm-hmm. so uh, this is, this is kind of hilarious. I, I amuse myself sometimes Wolfman Josh, as you know, and hopefully the listeners will find this amusing, but, um, and more importantly, hopefully Dr. Shock will find this amusing. Do you remember in 1991, it was the musical director who worked for Elvis Presley. I love that we've named Elvis twice in this episode. So far. Anyway, he figured that it would be awesome to take um, that song Unforgettable by Nat King Cole, or at least it was performed by Nat King Cole, and then kind of do a remixed edited version where he could sing a duet with his daughter. And this is after Nat King Cole was deceased. And they performed this at the Grammy Awards in 1992. It was pretty spectacular. Do you remember that? No. Oh, really? Okay. I'm sorry. I thought everybody knew about this. So, yeah. So, anyway, they had Natalie Cole singing along with her dad on the same song, Unforgettable. It was this beautiful thing, and he was deceased already, and it was just kind of this neat little thing. Anyway. <laughs> I remember the song was a big hit. Right. Exactly. Well, we have kind of an unforgettable little type of moment here in this episode as well, since it's Christmas and all, you know. Um so, Dr. Shock was on one of my all-time favorite horror podcasts, Planet Macabre. And in their second episode, they did Christmas Horror, and this was one of the films they reviewed. So, what I did, <laughs> since Doc wasn't able to join us for this review or able to re-watch it, I just took a short little clip to get Doc's sentiments. And so, this will be kind of be like us, you know, podcasting to unforgettable with Dr. Shock with us. <laughs> so, so here's what Dr. Shock had to say about Christmas evil. Well, I'll tell you what, I was, I was hanging in there toward the beginning of it. It was a little sloppy, but you know, when he pulled out those books and he's spying on the kids, I'm sitting there going, well, you know, this has some pretty good potential here to get real creepy, uh, you know, with him spying on these kids. But I did start losing patience with it when not a whole lot was happening. Seen at the church, it just, I was like, where the hell did that come from? I mean, that was just kind of like, whoa. I mean, there was nothing that, you know, kind of leading up to that. Yeah, there was no killings like that up to that point, right? It was so boring and drawn out. There, It really was. Like I said, I was losing patience with it. I said, something better happen here pretty soon, or that's pretty much the end of it for me. I thought it picked up a little bit after that. I don't know if it picked up enough to save the movie. And yeah, the ending 
uh, definitely had me rolling my eyes. I, <laughs> I'll cut it right there because we'll we'll go into that. But so that's some of his initial thoughts on the film, and I got his rating here later. But <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty funny, right? Yeah. Uh, okay, let's talk about this ending because here's the thing: if you haven't seen this film, this has a memorable ending, and Josh, not unlike the ending of Birdman. Oh, okay, great. <laughs> Which is another movie that deals with the psychology of your main character. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, yeah. So, okay, well, I know exactly where that's going now. <laughs> but it, it, <laughs> Sorry. It, no, well, I, I tell you, um, that's actually neat that you said that because now I'm wondering how it affected me. Because I was, I was about to ready to say, I don't think that even though it would be a, a spoiler to describe the ending... I honestly think it wouldn't hurt the viewing experience whatsoever to talk about it. And I and I think we should talk about the ending because it is interesting and I have the director talking about it too. So if if you do not want to have this ending spoiled for you, then you know, I guess skip ahead to the next review when you hear the trailer. But let's talk about the ending to Christmas Evil. How did you feel? Well, first of all, Josh, will you describe to people who are still with us and haven't seen this, will you describe what happens at the end? The very, very end? Are we just spoiling the whole movie? Yeah, I gave a spoiler alert. And it's not I a... Mean, basically, our Santa commits some crimes, vigilante style, and there, there are people after him. And the film ends with him kind of flying away on the dawn of a thistle, basically. Um, and... You're not quite sure if this is really happening or if this is just in his delusional mind. But as Jason said, he becomes Santa Claus at the end of the movie. And the car he's driving, this this van he's driving, flies off into the sky past the moon. And um, <laughs> and, and we, we should say, like, for example, he, he worked at a toy making factory, which we've talked about. But yeah, he has his van painted with Santa's sleigh on the side. Right. And there's this mob of angry people, you know, with torches for some reason chasing him. And then he veers and goes off of this bridge or cliff. And instead of the van going down and crashing, it just ascends up toward the moon as if he's in Santa's sleigh. And that's how it ends. Yeah. I loved it. Perfect. You loved it. (laughs) Perfect. You would. Now clearly you're see, my understanding is, Clearly, that was in his mind. However, one thing that really bugs me, and I think this was a huge misstep. I mean, it's fine if you want to end your movie that way. But, yeah, because in his mind, he was really Santa Claus. He had transformed into Santa Claus. But one of the characters, if you follow their eyeline, the character is looking at this and watches the van go up in the air. And maybe maybe that's Harry's mind imagining the characters looking at him. So, I mean, I guess that's passable, but it would have been so much better for me if it would have just, they somehow indicated that he actually crashed, but in his mind, he flew away. Well, you know, I, I prefer an ambiguous ending, so. You would. You totally would. It makes it way more interesting. Who, who, care, who cares what happened? It's it's way more interesting to imagine and have that kind of mystery still out there. Yeah. Okay. Well, the, these guys um, from this horror show, they asked Lewis Jackson about this ending, of course. And this is what he had to say. I think this is uh, very interesting. The end was supposed to be that he crashes, but it's his imagination and he goes. But there was just no money anymore. There was just no money. Well, you're already at so 700,000 be, yeah, yeah, so it becomes a quite ambivalent 
situation, and people have to judge it for themselves. The film played for eight years on 42nd Street. It's a record. Wow. When 42nd Street was 42nd Street. Around the time Street. of Christmas or just all year round? No, 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 at Christmas, every okay, year on right. Christmas. Wow. And the first year that it played, I go to the theater and I'm watching like the first screening. And when he flies off, Everybody in the audience is throwing things at the screen. <laughs> they're throwing popcorn. They're throwing them booing. With elation, I hope. Yeah, but they liked it. No, yeah. no, they were freaked out, uh -huh. and they really, they just, <laughs> you know, and I was just shocked. Well, I mean, the premise is that he becomes Santa Claus. Yes, 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 yeah, in his yes. Mind, in his but in his head, you know, the thing is, the crash. We couldn't afford to really kind of like do the crash anymore. Mm -hmm. So basically it's a crash and then he flies away and we play the music. Mm -hmm. So wow, so there it is. Was there a thought about just leaving it when he goes off the bridge at all? No, no, no. no. I wanted, I really wanted him to fly. No inception ending. <laughs> you could tell that that guy who asked that last question was like, uh, but did you think about ending it in a normal way? Like, <laughs> did you think about not screwing up your movie? No. But anyway, what do you think about what he said, Josh? I mean, yeah, it's. I, I think they made the right choice. I think it's great. I think, um, you know, it elevates the movie, in fact, for me. Like, it takes it from, I think the movie rides this line of, is this worth making you wonder, is this worthwhile or not? And I guess we heard Doc say, and you know, he lost patience with it. And for him, it wasn't. To me, the ending is a perfect capstone that makes me say, okay, like, classic. This, this just went from... Wow. I'm not sure about this movie because, again, the moments leading up to this, particularly with torches, it's a little much. It's a little weird. Right. It's the wor That's the worst part of the movie. But, again, interesting and enjoyable in its own way. But to me, to have him fly away in his van is instant cult classic. I mean, not that every movie that had a delusional Santa flying away in a van would be. But I think, <laughs> but I think under the circumstances, what this film has created – up until this point, yeah, it's exactly what I wanted. Oh, man. I am really shocked at how apologetic you've been for this film tonight. I'm not apologetic. It's a great movie, man. <laughs> You're like, I'm not even apologizing. I'm declaring it from the housetops. Yeah, I like it. Josh is up on a rooftop. <laughs> it's, it's rare that I see, you know, like we've talked about with Choppy Mall. It's rare that I find a movie that I haven't seen from this era that I really appreciate on the same level as those that I have a nostalgic, you know, have nostalgic appeal for me. I think the the best, obviously, I think you could show someone The Thing or Halloween, you know, where it's and and they they would enjoy it as new viewers. But I think mm -hmm. there are a lot of these '80s movies which I love that new viewers just can't appreciate. You know, to yeah. me, this this is one of the the rare instances where it's like, wow. Totally missed this movie, you know, went all these years without ever seeing it, popped it in, sight unseen, <laughs> then no idea what was going to happen next, and I was on the edge of my seat, uh, and it was perfect. That is hilarious. I mean, I, you know, I mean, I would have had other, I'm way overselling this, unfortunately, because I'm a little tired and I'm getting loopy. It's not as good as Psycho or Peeping Tom. You but know. you did say that. You did say that. I did. That's what I'm saying. I'm, okay. I'm, I'm, I'm getting a little loopy here, and I'm regretting most of the things I'm saying instantly after I say them. <laughs> but what I, let me try to just concentrate for a second and say, <laughs> I think it's a great cinematic oddity. I think it deserves its cult classic status. Mm -hmm. I'm really glad that I saw it. And I think this is a must see. I think everybody should see it once. Um, it definitely has kind of a psychodrama 
feel to it. And that's probably what it is first uh, before it's a horror movie. Yes, the horror elements are small, but I, I felt tension the entire time as I watched it. It's a great Christmas movie, I think. On my Christmas scale, I give this one an eight. I think it's got all the all the Christmas elements I want to see in it. Um, you know, there it is schlocky '80s, so it's got the you know the crappy toy factory, but there's a toy factory. It's got Santa delivering presents. The Santa kissing mommy was insane and perfect. And it's even got the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade, which again just is like it just feels like mm. my childhood. Like this, That's cool. this did have that kind of nostalgia for me, despite having not seen the film. Yeah, they show they show the underdog balloon at the yes. the Macy's Parade and the turkey, of course. Mm-hmm. So I said a lot of things during this review. <laughs> I don't know if I stand by all of them. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I definitely got caught up in this film. You know, it doesn't have all the kills that, you know, we would maybe like from a silent night, deadly night. But again, I think the story's better and I, and I enjoy the acting and it's just such an interesting little cinematic oddity that I, I, I can't give it lower than a six. And again, it's a must see rental. It's, playing for free right now on Amazon Prime. So there's no excuse. You should, you might as well check it out. And there's a brand new Blu-ray release from Vinegar Syndrome. I'm buying this. I'm going to watch this, if not every year, at least every other year. <laughs> and I'm, I'm so happy that I found a really fun new horror Christmas movie to watch. Mm-hmm. That's great. And by the way, if you don't have Amazon Prime or whatever in this isn't necessarily the best way, but I'm just saying there is, of course, a free version of the full movie on YouTube as well. Okay. It's just saying. Yeah. <laughs> You're the Christmas evil. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Wolfman Josh says Christmas evil or you better watch out is a six out of ten. He says buy it. Okay, well, here's what I got. I got the, um, if anybody's curious, I actually have the Planet Macabre ratings here. And, you know, these guys, some of these guys, like Greg Amortis or Bill Shetty, I would say I would consider them more of the viscerally minded type of horror fan. Do you think they would object to that classification? Of You're them? saying they like the blood and guts more than than the psychological? Right. You know, uh, Greg Amortis will defend 1978 Halloween to the death. And I think mm-hmm. he understands a smart psychological film like oh, that. Oh, yeah, definitely. And that doesn't have a lot of blood and guts in it, but... I'm just saying. So yeah, just just so people know here. Um, so Greg Amortis, he gave this a one out of 10 and said, avoid it. And he said that this movie should have been a five minute short film that was put on YouTube and then it was done with. <laughs> and I thought that was hilarious. It could have been 30 minutes and it would have probably been better. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Let's be, let's be honest. But I, you know, on a first watch, I was, com- it was totally compelling for me. Okay. All right. And then a lady phantom, uh, gave it a one instead of void. Hell Hunter gave it a two instead of void. Hell Hunter was busting the director's chops a lot in that planet macabre episode. By the way, it's episode two. I'll have it linked in the show notes. Cause you should go listen to that Christmas horror episode. It's really a good time. And then Bill Shetty gave it a 2.5 and said, avoid it. And I have Doc's rating here, which with him giving his final thoughts. And by the way, on Planet Macabre, they used to give a scare factor as well. So you'll hear his scare factor rating and then his overall rating. Here it is. Okay, on a scare, I'm actually going to go for a two only because, you know, being a father, I'm thinking if this guy's looking at my kids through a binoculars, I'm going to be a little creeped out. Absolutely. And that's what I was thinking as I was watching it. But mm-hmm. I'm not going higher than a two. 
uh, overall, I'll stay right there. Also, I'll give it a I'll give it a two. Um, and if you see the movie, light some torches and give it chase. <laughs> that was classic, that huh? Was well done, Doc. Yeah, he is very funny, unforgettable. In fact, so um, that was Doc's rating. Here's my rating, y'all. Christmas Evil is a 4 out of 10. I call it a low-priority rental, though. There is not enough horror to it, but it is a curious oddity. I think it's worth seeing at least once if you're a horror fan. Now, again, this is something that I'll I'll revisit on future Christmases, but maybe not every single year. I, I just don't know when it would be, but uh, you know, I do kind of agree with Greg Amortis' sentiments that, you know, maybe a short film idea, but, you know... <laughs> The actor, he pulls it off. Fiona Apple's dad. I mean, I think he pulls it off, even if it is a little bit over the top. I mean, the film itself is kind of over the top if you think about it. So it kind of matches. But yeah, I feel like I'm the voice of reason on this one, Josh. And I think four is a very appropriate rating for this. I'm surprised that you guys didn't like this. I honestly, I'm shocked. It was so much fun. It's too slow. Yes, I mean... Not enough kills. I mean, if they had more horror kills, I would have been on board. I mean, if they would have had at least two had, more, I two or I three. Any expectations. Yeah. So I, I just put it in, push play, and was just, you know, carried away. Well, you know, I love that when that happens, when you just have a good experience with a movie, just because you love movies and you're just letting it wash over you and it just takes you somewhere. I mean, that's why we love movies. Absolutely. All right, so at this point on episode 37 of Horror Movie Podcast, I'm joined with the Wolfman, Josh Legary, and we're going to feature review a film called Saint from 2010. Yeah, or Scent if you live in the Netherlands or Belgium. Right, and on Netflix, where it's currently streaming, they call it Saint Nick. Mm, confusing. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it really is confusing. <laughs> I'm glad you're here, Wolfman, because I know that you actually have some specialized knowledge about the Netherlands and Dutch films like this one in particular. Could you just shed some light and give us, you know, teach us? We're ready to be educated. Yeah, well, um, Sinterklaas is a holiday on December 5th um, where... The Saint Nicholas, who uh, they call Saint Nicholas, um, visits uh, the homes, brings gifts, chocolate, and takes um, the bad children back to Spain with his black Moorish slaves. Traditionally, <laughs> that isn't done as much now in recent times. Um, but uh, yeah, because so that's fallen out of fashion somewhat, right? Exactly, it's, right. It's but the upon. but the character of Santa Claus is um he really you know he looks like a pope like character. He's got the big saint hat on, and he has. The, but other than that, he looks like Santa Claus. He's got this giant long flowing beard and the red the red colors and the gold and the white, and he rides this white horse, probably a Frisian stallion or something like that. Um, but in the in their tales, he he comes on a boat from Spain and and has these um, these more slaves with them. They call Svarte Piet, which means Black Pete. And in Holland, and this is becoming recently, very recently out of fashion in the Netherlands, but I lived there around the turn of the 
century, <laughs> not that long ago, what do you call it? the millennium, uh, you know, the year 2000. Mm-hmm. And they were, it was still very popular, like major stores decorated with these characters and stuff. Apparently now it's a little less in fashion, but basically, you know, these characters often depicted by white guys being that they're in the Netherlands, um, these big, tall Dutch blonde guys wearing blackface and red lipstick and curly black wigs. And, um, you know, they're, they're the Dutch version of bringing coal to bad boys and girls, basically. Mm. Um, but, you know, over, overall, the characters are beloved, um, even the Svartapit characters. And that's what you Dutch kids get um, chocolate with, you know, in the letter of their name. So you would get like a, a J for J of the Dead, basically. Nice. Okay. Big chocolate J is what I would give you for Christmas. And right. What, what people would exchange and and people love Santa Claus. There's even a village in um, Belgium called Santa Claus where they've got this giant Santa Claus statue. Um, this big Saint Santa Claus and everything is kind of Santa Claus themed now because you know the Western tradition of Santa Claus that Coca Cola created <laughs> has kind of you know um, <laughs> proliferated the world uh, celebration of Christmas. They also have our Santa Claus there that comes on the twenty fifth. Do they fight? Um, they should. They call, <laughs> but they call him the Christmas Man. The Christmas so, Man. Yeah, they call him Kerstman. Uh, so I the, like that. Yeah. So there's there's our Santa Claus, which is Kerstman on the twenty fifth, and their Santa Claus, which is Santa Claus on or Sinter Claus is the holiday on the fifth, and then um, they actually have the third day of Christmas is the twenty sixth. Um, and maybe that's their Santa Claus Day. Actually, they have one day that's only dedicated to Christ, and one day that's dedicated to presents and I, stuff. I think their third Christmas is um, three French hens on that day. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> perfect. So that's kind of the backstory. Um, this movie changes that backstory. Um, here they make uh, Santa Claus this, or Saint Nicholas, kind of the leader of this um, gang, basically that runs this small town, like the mafia, apparently. (laughs) And uh, they run into some trouble with the local villagers who aren't going to put up with their shenanigans anymore. And so um, they kind of give them the, the uh, Freddy Krueger treatment. Mm -hmm. um, Yes. And in Freddy Krueger like style, he comes back to haunt them. uh, Yes. Later on. Yeah, go ahead. So, uh, sorry, a couple of things um, I got to ask you about. Well, number one, my, um, my buddy's wife, she was raised by parents like her, her father was a minister or a pastor mm-hmm. and they didn't, they, they opted not to have Santa Claus, you know, for their children. Right. And, and so she, she has a different attitude about Santa Claus. She actually refers to him as Satan Claus, which is like hilarious, hilarious to me. But, um, <laughs> you know, I, I don't know why I brought that up but it just reminded me like with this it almost seems like you know how i mean i did it just this evening actually uh sometimes to help keep our kids in line we um you know give a little warning that you know santa's elves are watching or whatever and you gotta be good and blah 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 (laughs) you know in hopes that in the couple weeks leading up to christmas your children will behave a little bit better than usual and you'll get somewhat of a break but he's used in a threat not a threatening way like he's going to harm you but in this film it seems like the dutch perception of him is it's kind of threatening so is that accurate i mean is this being hauled away to spain 
Is it kind of a threat that they just <laughs> took too far with their kids and just pushed him out there where he could potentially be um, a scary guy if you're not well behaved? Yeah, I mean, I don't think my my perception from living there is that the kids don't really think twice about it. They, you know, they're just having a good old time at Christmas. So that may have been a thing, but I don't think it's really. Um, you know, affected the kids' appreciation of Santa Claus in any way. I mean, you even look at um, in Austria; they've got that demon. What is that? <laughs> the Christmas uh, Klumpus or something like that? I can't forget <laughs> what it's called. But oh, the Grinch. The, yeah, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I can't remember what it's called. Krampus. It's called Krampus in in Austria, where it's like it's basically this giant demon that comes along with Santa Claus and kidnaps the children. Um, it's referenced in. Uh, Rare exports, that movie, Rare Exports. Nice. Uh-huh. But, um, so I don't know. I mean, people, I think just when you're raised with it, you don't think twice about it. They definitely have a different, slightly different vibe during Christmas. You know, our, again, I think our whole Christmas tradition is based on Norman Rockwell and Coca-Cola to a large extent. But, is, um, is that true? When you said that, it kind of blew my mind. That is Coca-Cola I be- I be- responsible for I believe our- that that painting of Santa Claus that they have is you know, is the one where we draw our um, the look and style of our Santa Claus from, if I'm not mistaken. Um, wow, that's amazing. I'm not positive. Don't quote me on that. Well, I would believe you because honestly, prior to that time, I mean, what would that be? 1910s, 1920s? Is that, I don't know what year, <sighs> year those paintings um, are, but. Yeah, good question. But um, I, I don't know of any, I haven't seen any older depictions than that. To my knowledge. In America, you mean? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's what I mean. I mean, you know, there's the night before Christmas was kind of like the the one that everyone went by for years. Um, but, you know, I mean, obviously the the mythology of Santa Claus goes way, way back. Um, mm-hmm. Far before the 1900s, I mean. Yeah, yeah. Early Italian, Germanic, French um, histories and... Uh, Nordic gods and all kinds of things going on up there. So this is a very weird tangent, Wolfman, but um, you know what's interesting to me about this particular episode of Horror Movie Podcast is it seems like we have, it is our Christmas horror episode, and even though, you know, Christmas is said to be, at least for me it is, the celebration of the birth of Christ for Christians, um, this episode or, or, or horror movies in general that pertain to Christmas, they always are more on the, the Santa Claus side. Hmm. And I only bring that up to say that, um, let's see, how can I say this? I wonder if it's like, that's the Christian side of it is the the far extreme opposite of horror because it's like light and hope and peace and so forth. And it's like, well... We can't really do a lot with that for a horror movie, right? <laughs> you, you know what I mean? So, sure. so so then they take this Santa Claus thing, which we talked about already in our Christmas Evil review, where yeah, there are some dark elements that are kind of creepy. He's always watching and, you know, yeah. he pays attention to your behavior. So um, that's just interesting to me that that's how um, Christmas horror tends to be. It's either a backdrop in the film where, you know, there are Christmas lights and Christmas carols playing, or it's some, some like, evil version of Santa Claus. Yeah, absolutely. That seems to be the thing to do. Um, there's also that horror movie where the, the killer goes around killing Santa Clauses. 
Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I can't remember what one that was, but now, now see, that's probably my friend's wife. <laughs> no, it was awesome. I said to her father because it always bothered me her snotty little attitude about it, and it's like, yeah, if you don't want to do Santa Claus, that's fine, but don't be snotty to me about it. <laughs> and um, so I went up to her dad at their wedding, like we were decorating for their wedding, and I'm like, how come you didn't? Do Santa Claus for your kids, <laughs> you know, like weirdo. No, I didn't say weirdo, but because he, he's a really nice guy. I love the guy a lot. But he said to me, well, Jason, we just don't believe in deceiving our children. <laughs> like, so, <laughs> so it was just, it was so awesome. Anyway, I'm sorry. So this horse that he's on in the actual Dutch mythology of this, yeah. is the horse immortal? Like, what are their characteristics that way? That's interesting. I hadn't I hadn't heard anything about the horse being immortal. That is definitely a, a element of the movie. Um, yeah, and also in in real life, he carries a giant cross around with him. When he in this movie, it's turned into kind of like a Sith almost. Yeah, it's a weapon. Scythe. It's yeah, pretty <laughs> so, awesome. Yeah. <laughs> a Sith. <laughs> I love it that you said Sith. <laughs> no, that I always I always pronounce it that way too, accidentally. But um, do you remember that line? Man, I am bad about tangents tonight. But do you remember that line from stupid episode three of Star Wars when he says, uh, "Obi, no, um, yeah, Obi Wan Kenobi says only the Sith speak in absolutes. <laughs> no, yeah. only the Sith deal in absolutes. That's just hilarious to me." Yeah. <laughs> Which in and of itself is an absolute. Is an absolute. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, clever writing in that film. Yes. Um, so this, so is it called Catch Night? Because that's from this movie. They refer to that night as Catch Night. Hmm, I, that I haven't heard. Maybe that's what that's what this start to Pete <laughs> referred to. Uh, okay. When they catch the children. Yeah, because they catch <laughs> the children, and they say in this movie, but not only the children. You know, so it's like ominous. But yeah, I wondered about the horse thing and um what is it about Spain? So he's from Spain then and Yeah, he comes on a ship. He comes on a ship from Spain. Okay. Uh, with his guys in blackface. Yeah. See that's horse. That's very interesting. And and a lot of this is depicted in the movie, except it has a, a lot darker turn to it because as we see the the film opens in 1492 AD and we actually get exposition on this whole backstory throughout the film. Now, a couple questions for you, Josh. Um, I watched this on Netflix watch instantly and it was streaming on there and it, it is a Dutch film. And so it is, it has English dubs. Right. And I have to say, these are some of the worst English dubs I, <laughs> I have ever seen in my life. So listeners should know right up front that they're awful. It's terrible. And it's not just the mismatching of the, you know, the words of the mouths, but it's like the casting of the voice actors <laughs> doing the dubbing was absolutely all wrong. I mean, it's it seemed like, I can't state this for certain, but it seemed like, you know, you'd have an actor in his like, 60s or whatever and then you'd have a guy and he was like 30 <laughs> and it's just and the performances are like really bad the voice performances so i saw it in dutch so um i didn't have that experience but that did you see it on it's on netflix right now did you say is that where you saw it yeah yeah exactly 
Um, I wanted to say one more thing about Sword to Pete um, before it. we move on, because in this movie, um, their uh, their dark skin, as you say, is brought on by something else. It's not not the uh, that they're Moors. It's actually it has to do with the Freddy Krueger moment that I mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. and um, and that's actually based in kind of probably the newer interpretation of that. A lot of people in Holland will say, "Oh, well, they're black from the soot." You know, from <laughs> because they have soot on their faces, not from not because they're racially black. Um, that is not what the tradition is. That's just kind of what people say these days. You know, oh. um, but it does. But they haven't changed that depiction of that classic black face, black curly wig, red lipstick look. You know, it's still yeah. the same thing. So I don't think that that's true. But that is probably maybe that's what they tell the kids these days. Um, but I was actually I was looking over this uh, article here about Sartapete, and it looks like they took a poll in 2013 that 92 percent of the Dutch population did not perceive Sartapete to be racist or associated with slavery, and 91 percent were opposed to altering the character's appearance. So, I think when you grow up with it, you don't think twice about it. Probably. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and other misconceptions that were um, outlined in the film, but I wonder if this is the case because you know they took some license in this movie. Yeah. But they said that the December fifth was not his birthday, which is what people commonly think, but it was the date that he was horribly murdered. Right. Historically, right. now is that is that. That's not I don't part think that of... has anything to do with the holiday at okay. all. Okay. No. What about this? Um, okay. In the film, they just made kind of this offhanded remark that the Catholic Church was not really happy about him because he is a um, murdering apostate bishop. <laughs> <laughs> so, is that. Um, I've never heard that either. He's the patron saint of sailors um, traditionally. So that's um, oh, that's neat. kind of the thing i knew about him and again he comes on a ship so that's but no i'd never heard that he was a a murderous guy i think that's probably has to do more with the film's plot than anything else okay interesting well if um listeners out there do me a favor please i mean i I probably will rewatch this again uh probably even next year actually (laughs) but but when you watch this in the beginning of the film pay attention to this they say that once every 32 years, there's a full moon on December 5th, and that's when St. Nicholas comes to get you, when there's a full moon. And then at the end of the film, I, I could have sworn they said something to the effect of, okay, well, in 23 more years, right? So yeah. either either I'm dyslexic um, you know, in my writing sometimes, which happens to everybody, I think, or they made a giant mistake in their script because they say 32 at one time and 23 at another time. And I'm just, <laughs> if you could pay attention to that for me, I'd be interested in knowing if that was the case. Our last full moon on December 5th. You know, that might have that might have to do with the translation of the dub. Oh, really? Um, because in Dutch, you say the number that comes after first. So if I was saying 23, I would say 3 and 20. Oh, interesting. So I wonder if I wonder if that mistake happened because of the translation. Maybe, yeah. Very good. It's cool that you can speak Dutch. Do you want to show us some? The inventive is what they would have said. Oh, okay. Very nice. I'm impressed. So for those who are curious about if you need to worry about uh Sinterklaas, is that how do you say it? Sinterklaas, yeah. Yeah, okay. If you're worried about Saint Nicholas, 
Um, or Saint Nicholas, if they're talking about the actual saint. Oh, okay. Well, if you're worried about that, the last December 5th that was a full moon was in 2006. When's the next one, though? So we don't have to deal with it for a few more years? Yeah, I mean, I was looking it up, and it it's really, um, it's actually hard to find one, because this year, in 2014, December 6th was a full moon. But anyways, here's another clarification question, and I hope... <laughs> I hope people aren't annoyed with all of our little details we're going into. But um, so in this film, you know, December 5th, isn't that the day, right? Is that St. Nicholas Day? Yeah. Okay. Center Claus, yeah. But they kept referring to it. They would say, like, on the night that all this was happening, they kept calling it the night before St. Nicholas Day or St. Nicholas Eve. And they were referring to it. On December 5th. So I was very confused about that. That's true. It does happen at night, kind of like Christmas Eve. Um, And then on the 6th, I think, is like the day he comes or something like that. Or you wake up and you find your stuff. Or I don't know, actually. That's a a good question. I think he comes on the night of the 5th to your house, like during dinner oftentimes. They like bring you stuff. Um, That's that's how I experienced it um, when I was there. Okay. (laughs) And then I think on the 6th, they have like the parade that would be like our Thanksgiving Day parade kind of a situation. Okay. That's interesting. Um, what about this? So I know it's I'm not been- mistaken. Mike, we have a listener, Michael, at least one that I know of. You should call in and let us know everything I'm butchering. Yeah. Teach us about this. This is interesting. Um, there is a scene in this movie that alone I think makes it worth seeing. I think this is worth seeing. Anyway, and I'll, I'll go into why, but I, first of all, I love the cover art. I just want to put that out there. If you look it up on Netflix, you know, you type in Scent, S-I-N-T, or Saint, you'll find it from 2010. It has a beautiful poster art. Yeah, I agree. I think it was cooler, actually, initially. They tried to kind of, like, make it scarier oh, okay. as they've done revisions, and I thought the original one was the most beautiful, but... Oh, wow, okay. More more silhouetted. It became more, like, zombie-faced as time went on, but... Yeah, that's a good way to describe it. But um, as this film opens, it's clearly, like, very digital, very CGI environment, but it looks extremely sharp. I mean, it's super sharp. It's like um, Toy Story in the Netherlands, like at night. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I mean, it looks beautiful and usually I'm really against that, but cause it's extremely artificial looking, but it's also at the same time, flawless. Do you remember those, uh, space paintings, those weird paintings that you used to see at the mall and it'd be like the moon and there'd be a lake or an ocean on the moon. Right. And it just looked perfect. It, it's kind of like that. It reminds me of that in the beginning of this movie. Um, there's a scene in this that I think it makes it worth seeing. This guy, Kurt, he ends up being our um, one of our protagonists, more or less. He's a cop, and he has a, a funny <laughs> he has a funny attitude toward this day, December fifth, and. He encounters a present, like a Christmas present, on his desk. And I won't say what happens, but that took me by surprise. I laughed out loud, and it was just really interesting. So that's pretty funny. It's it's not a huge deal, but I've just never seen that happen in a movie ever in my life. Right. Um, 
and I will say this film is pretty violent. Like, like there are some pretty decent kill, kill scenes or some gore. Like you get a shovel into the face, you get a pitchfork through the back. Um, I think my favorite kill in this was, um, you get a sharp object that comes through the back of somebody's head and out their mouth, which we've seen that before, mm-hmm. but it's very well done and it's, um, extremely fast and it's shocking and these are cgi kills but they're decent you got people chopped in half you got um one of those (laughs) where a flare you know blows somebody's head head up and um (laughs) so pretty good kill scenes in this actually you'll be surprised at how quickly how many characters are killed off that you know you think are more significant i mean there's a lot of killing going on in this movie and i think that's awesome but at the same time, like, it's weird because some of the things in this movie seem technically amazing, but then other things, Josh, are really off. And I, I wonder if they had a brand new first-time editor. I could probably look that up. But there's a really bad editing faux pas that probably most people wouldn't even realize was like a rule in editing. But just just the fact that you see it happen in this film, it's like, that's definitely got to be a rule in editing. Tell me what you think about this. It cross cuts between these two scenes where these people are on f- the phone. You know, it's this couple. They're talking on the telephone. And yeah. and as it goes to each line in the conversation, it just keeps cutting back between the two pl- two rooms where they are. And one person is listening to music <laughs> and the other person is not. And, <laughs> and so as this is cutting back and forth... It is maddening to hear like two seconds of that music and then it cuts dead silence. Music, nothing, music, nothing. It's hilarious, but uh, it's also kind of awful. What are your thoughts on that? Just curious. I don't know. That is a difficult situation to deal with. I mean, I think um, usually they try to to cut less, right? Like you would hear the other person's voice kind of quieter or maybe you'd hear the music quieter Mm -hmm. on the other end of the line just to minimize that. The, the back and forth cutting as much as possible, but yeah, yeah. So I, I'm. <laughs> it's just I just wonder uh, the the editor, and I'm sure you could say his name. His last name's got like 20 letters in it. <laughs> it's Bert something. <laughs> okay, I'll look it up and I'll, I'll go. For it. I'll, I can put it in the Skype chat for you because I want to hear you say this name. I'll be okay. very impressed. This is his last name in the Skype chat. <laughs> It's like Rajiko Hickelhusen. <laughs> it's Reichelikhausen. What? Are you serious? Yeah, because because the I J is a Y sound. Oh, okay. So it's, it's you're going Reichelikhausen. Okay, so Bert Reichelikhausen. 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 Okay, so he was the editor in this film. So shout out to Bert there. And um, just looking over his editing filmography, this was not his first rodeo. So <laughs> <laughs> it looks like he started in 92. So come on, Bert. Anyway, I just thought I'd call out the editor yeah, there. Well. But in another sequence, there's a pretty decent wipe. I, I like, um, would you explain to the audience in case they don't know what a wipe is? I mean, uh, it's basically when the edge of the screen, sl- let's see. That's not a, that's a push. It's when a, like a line goes through the screen, um, wipes across the screen to change scene. This is most often like the easiest um, example I can give you is in Star Wars. They do it in Star Wars a lot where 
just a, a line will basically come across the screen top to bottom, side to side that will reveal the other scene behind it. Right. Yeah. And there's um, one of those in this that I, I appreciated and it's a, it goes from bottom to top is there's this fenced area and as the, the fence goes up or whatever, it goes to this girl's house. It's just interesting and you kind of notice it. It sticks right. out. Now, there are some terrible lines of dialogue in this. I also wanted to warn people about that. So basically, you know, the imagery is great, but when it comes to anything having to do with talking or words in this, like it's all bad. Um, there's one, there's one little exchange. The first line is, do you smell something burning? And the next line is, it must be my mood. <laughs> <laughs> now, do you think that's a translation problem? Oh, it's got to be, yeah. I'm trying to think of what the, what the Dutch version would be and if that would sound any better. <laughs> like, what, what, what brandt or something like that? I don't know. That's interesting. That does sound better, what you just said. <laughs> so, there's another one that says, Frank, where are you? And then Frank's answer is, I'm on a boat. And the original person says, what boat is this? <laughs> and I'm like, what? And then, um, and well, then so that's it, another one where it could be the translation. Like, I think if you were on, if you were Dutch, you might say like, what kind of boat? Or could it have been what kind of boat would make more sense? Or I don't know, like, or or or, or maybe it was like, why are you on a boat? Or or yeah. what boat? Or where? Or you know what I mean? Yeah. But it was like, what boat is this? It was just so funny. And yeah, I mean, I think it means like what, like what boat are you talking about? Would be like if they if they said like what boat is is that? Or it, you know, they would be saying like like what are you talking about boat? You know? Yeah. Okay, I got gotcha. you. And then this one, I don't think that we can even blame on translation because this one character says, "Hey, I got to pee," and the other character says, "Go pee in your pants." <laughs> it's like. <laughs> it's like I'm like, are they kidding me with this dialogue in this movie? I mean, it's really struggles, but I'm going to say that a lot from now on. Yeah. Yeah. So anyways, I just want to say that um, Saint, which is the title that comes up on the screen. I know it's known by a lot of names, but if you see the film, the title card says Saint from 2010. For, for me, this is like a 4.5 out of 10. I give it a low priority rental. You gotta know what you're getting into with the dubs, the subtitles. Um, not the subtitles, but the the English dubs. If you could watch this in subtitles, <laughs> then I would recommend doing that instead. But what do you say, Wolfman? Yeah, I mean, I saw it in in Dutch, and I didn't have I didn't those types of lines didn't necessarily stand out to me. So I would recommend seeing the original language version. Well. But with subtitles, right? Because not everybody well, yeah, yeah, yeah. speaks touch like you. Right. Yes, right. <laughs> with subtitles. Fancy man. Okay, so what do you rate Saint? Do you remember where you come in on this one? Yeah, um, I liked it quite a bit. I think it's, um, I mean, I think, you know, like, I think the CGI is distracting. It's especially annoying because you're in a place that has, you're filming this in a place that has all these beautiful old cobblestone streets and stuff. Like, why fake it, fake all this extra Stuff I don't know. They seemed like they could have done a lot of it practically, and that could have been really awesome. Um, but I do like that the movie even exists, and I, I, I kind of there's I'm kind of like hope for a better 
Sit in a Claus movie because I think he is kind of a cool character and kind of a scary vibe about him anyway. And so I think that is like more so than Santa Claus. Like I think he's an interesting character for a horror movie. Um, but I, I still like this. I would probably give it a six and I would say it's a, it's definitely a rental recommendation um, if you haven't seen it. Okay. Well, man, Josh, that's, it's a six. That's great. Rent it. All right. Once again, if you're in the States, it is currently streaming on Netflix. Watch instantly. And it's called Saint or on Netflix, Saint Nick. Yeah. And at this point in episode 37, we're going to move into one of Wolfman's picks. I'm going to let him introduce it because this is his pick and we're probably going to fight about this. So go ahead, brother. (laughs) The most ferocious horror movie of all time. (laughs) It's probably not Gremlins 1984, but I do think it's a great movie. It's a great little creature feature, and it's a great Christmas movie, and it's a it's a great horror comedy. I think uh, to me, this is one of the great movies to come out of the 80s, and that is Joe Dante's Gremlins. Billy Pelser has a nice home and loving parents who are about to give him. You're gonna like this. No, 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 don't shake it. We're going to have to open it now. We'll wait till Christmas. The most unusual gift he ever got. What is it? No. It's your new pet. Come on, Barney. Be a good dog. My dad gave it to me. But there are a few things to keep in mind. If you expose it to the light, you may hurt it. If you get it wet, it will multiply. All that from water? They got wet? Yeah, plain water. And most important, no matter how much they beg, never... Never let them eat after midnight. Because when they do, they change. Joe Dante's a guy I love. He uh, often mixes the horror with the comedy. And um, he, he reminds me of Sam Raimi a little bit. He kind of he kind of splits the difference between Steven Spielberg and Sam Raimi for me mm-hmm. um, in terms of his approach to filmmaking. Um, this is also written by Chris Columbus, who uh, probably now most people know him as the director of the first Harry Potter movie. Mm-hmm. Um, but he also directed Home Alone, which which is great. I think is a Christmas movie. He uh, wrote The Goonies. Um, he's 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 done a lot of great work actually in his career. Um, and this is uh, is one of those movies I think. So basically, the the story is about. Um, as Steven Spielberg said, a boy and his gremlin, or maybe he even said a gremlin and his boy. Um, he likes pitching movies that way. I remember when he pitched um, <laughs> E.T., he said a boy and his alien. And when he pitched Transformers, he said, we're going to do Transformers as a boy in his car. Mm-hmm. And uh, that seems to be one of his favorite uh, ways to think about that gets him excited about movies. So if you ever find yourself in a pitch situation with Steven Spielberg, make sure to uh, <laughs> figure out how to make it about a young boy and, and his friend that, you know, his inanimate object friend. Well, he's a man child himself. I mean, he, yes, he is such a a child. (laughs) So Chris Columbus talked about this movie is, um, uh, kind of being inspired by the rats in his New York apartment. You know, he'd graduated from film school at NYU, I believe. And at night he said, he just hear these like armies of rats scurrying around through the walls while he tried to sleep and how terrifying it kind of was. And, uh, that kind of got him excited about the idea of gremlins. Um, when da- Joe Dante come on to direct, he was reminded of kind of the Bugs Bunny cartoons and especially those who appreciate gremlins too. the new batch will know 
Joe Dante is a huge Looney Tunes fan. I guess not to mention he directed the Looney Tunes movie. But he was definitely inspired by the Looney Tunes uh, use of the Gremlins and the Looney Tunes in general when he made this movie. And so I think for Dante, I think the th- reason this movie is interesting and probably why it's frustrating to you is I think Chris Columbus wrote a horror movie. And I think when you – the original script um, – there's a lot more horror in the original script. There's the, the mom gets decapitated and her head's thrown down the stairs. Uh, the dog dies. Uh, trademarks of a good of a true horror movie. Um, mm-hmm. And um, this was right around the time when there was all that hubbub about horror movies, thanks to the the Friday the Thirteenth films. And apparently, an, an early draft of the script of To Gremlins got out, and Roger uh, Ebert and Gene Siskel got a hold of it, and it was one of their um, one of the things they used in their kind of diatribe against horror movies when they did that big rant against horror movies in the summer of, I guess, 1983 um, was one of the times. So when they were filming this picture. So, um, so, so interestingly enough, that kind of, that backlash kind of led to them pulling a lot of the horror elements out of the movie. Spielberg wasn't a big fan of the horror anyway to him. Again, this was about a boy and his gremlin, a boy and his monster, essentially. Um, and for Dante, this was a satire about you know those small town monster movies like Invasion of the Body Snatchers, which is referenced directly in the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and for Chris Columbus, it was a horror movie, so it's it you know it's kind of crossing over all of these um, you know different edges of the audience. You know, Spielberg, for instance changed one of the major elements in the original script there's a there's one of the evil gremlins is called stripe and initially that was supposed to be gizmo gizmo was supposed to become stripe uh but spielberg knew no kids are gonna love gizmo and we want him to be in all the scenes you know as gizmo so let's make let's make sure that gizmo stays good all the way through Mm mm-hmm then you get to the end of the movie um, where it's a chance for who, you know, who we believe to be our main character, Billy, where he gets the chance to kind of save the day. Spielberg re-edits that scene to make sure that Gizmo is the hero of that scene. Um, so there, so he had his fingers in it the whole time. And so I think it's interesting that this movie um, suffered from kind of like all the creators having different visions for it. But I don't think the film suffers when you watch it. I think um, it, it just makes it this unique experience that it really is mm-hmm. quite unlike anything else um that I've seen before. I'm with you. And by the way, that was a brilliant introduction to Gremlins. I'm very impressed. <laughs> it was a little <laughs> over long. I apologize. No, no, no. You you impressed me like pretty much every episode, Wolfman. So um I liked it. Okay, first thing, just so you and Doc know, and Doc really wished he could be here for this. He was totally going to be here. He even had a beer with um, Nosferatu on the front of the can tonight. (laughs) And his Skype had gremlins in it, apparently, because he could not get on Skype with us. And he said the beer was bitter and terrible. So Doc's having a terrible night, and we miss him. But I, I just wanted to tell you both, I love this movie. I totally love it. I saw this in 1984 in the theater. It was a single small town theater called The Strand in Moundsville, West Virginia. And man, I loved it. So I'm with you on that. I mean, I love the film. But yeah, we had this issue when we were first talking about it because I was reluctant to cover it on Horror Movie Podcast because it seems like a 
horror movie junior or something like that. It's, it's like a, but you know, your introduction was really great. And having revisited the film for this review, you're exactly right. And you can see what you described at about the 50 minute mark. Yeah. It becomes a horror film for about 10 or 15 minutes from about 50 minute to an hour five. Um, because I watched this, you challenged me, you said, watch that with your, your little boy. And, and I did cause he loves monsters and stuff. <laughs> was he terrified? <laughs> no, but, um, I was cringing a little bit here and there because it, <laughs> it was a little bit, you know, in places it was a little bit more than, you know, I was anticipating. He's, he's five. He's six. Okay. Going on seven, but he, he really loves monsters. So, you know, I figured it'd be okay, but you know, I was <laughs> n- nervous. His mom was going to bust me on it, but, but, but basically it was really awesome because uh, he enjoyed it. But so from the 50 minute mark, you've got things that are, it gets pretty dark. I mean, you've got a traditional horror movie type of kill. The first kill in it, um, it doesn't show anything, but it is structured like a horror movie. And Wolfman, I really think that on one of our themed episodes, I think in 2015, we're going to have to tackle the concept of horror movie tone because, and I think it's going to be difficult. I think it's an ambitious topic, but I think we should do it because we fight so much in our genre and the horror movie fans, we all fight so much over what's a horror movie and what's not and blah, blah, blah. And honestly, I think the heart of that matter comes down to tone. I really yeah. do. So, and this has a horror movie tone for that 15 minute period. You got things where I wouldn't call these spoilers. This is very mild stuff. I'm sure everybody's seen this movie, but this will be very, very mild. You know, an attempted strangulation of the mother of our protagonist. Yeah. You, you know, and that's, she's in a, she's in a horror movie. Like, if you just took her character, she's in a horror movie the whole time. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. And and I wonder how it affects a kid, because there there's a moment, there's a gremlin in the Christmas tree, and the Christmas tree, you know, attacks her. It looks like the Christmas tree is attacking her. And I could see that being kind of traumatic for a kid. And, and that sounds silly on the podcast, but I, I'm just saying... It really does have some genuine horror elements for those 15 minutes. And then after that, it turns into the Muppet Show. Totally Muppet Show Well, stuff. I wanted the Muppet Show. And I think I've told this story on the podcast before. But, you know, I went and saw this movie when it came out, too. And I'm a, I'm a couple years younger than you. Mm-hmm. But um, I went to go see the Muppets. <laughs> When I went to go see this movie <laughs> and I left crying, um, you know, uh, and it's funny, like within a couple of years, I, when did Ghostbusters came out? Did it come out the exact same year as this? I think it did. I think you're right about that. Those were my two theater experiences as a child where I begged my mom to take me and I ended up just terrified. Um, Ghostbusters during the library scene, I was able to recover from that scene. At least it's so short. Yeah. And, um, you know, and enjoy the rest of the movie. But this movie, this was my first walkout experience. I, uh, when the, when the gremlins are, are tormenting, uh, Billy's mom, that was, that was a little bit too much for me as a kid. And I, I asked to leave the theater. Yeah. <laughs> my mom was pretty upset with me cause I had begged her and told her I will not be scared. Uh, do not worry. 
<laughs> but I, but you know, this uh, this became a movie that I loved, and Steven Spielberg was right. Um, you know, Gizmo was too adorable to be forgotten, and I had a Gizmo muscle shirt that I wore most of elementary school, <laughs> and uh, I thought it was awesome. That's and uh, this became one of my favorite films once I was able to watch it on television and with some of the more graphic elements removed. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. And, and I could totally see, I mean, it was probably on the border for me at that age too, but I, I ultimately loved it, but it, you know, I could see it being traumatic for a kid. And, you know, I had to talk my son, you know, that rating PG parental guidance, right. You yeah. know, and you, if you, if you're there to talk your kids through things, then it's better, you know, it goes better. <laughs> well, you know that rating PG. <laughs> <laughs> this along with Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, which ironically are two Steven Spielberg films, um, were the two films that probably more than any other are credited with the creation of the PG-13 because <laughs> uh, the film was seen as too intense for the PG rating. Absolutely. So because we're freaks about, I mean, we're just so obsessed with categorizing things, I would say first... This is a, a family movie. And then second, I would call it a Christmas type of movie. And, and third, I would call it a comedy horror creature feature. So it's kind of, it's a Beastly Freaks flick, but it's, it's definitely comedy horror. That's how IMDb has it. And I would totally agree with that. But this is like, like I said, like horror for juniors, like, you know, for younger kids. Right? Like, yeah, I mean, I would say for like fifth grade and above, though. I wouldn't say right personally. Yeah. So you're not going to show your kids. No way. No way. In All fact, right. I rewatched this with that in mind and I was like, they would, they would freak out if I showed them this. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, it's, there are some actual legitimately scary moments. Again, they're all in that, you know, that 15 minutes you're talking about, but I thought the horror elements there were well, well done mm -hmm. um, during that portion yeah. In fact, I think we were robbed thanks to Spielberg or maybe perhaps thanks to Siskel and Ebert. I don't know. But um, there's this great setup in that first kind of quote unquote horror scene with the teacher that's never paid off. And I know that they shot it a different way initially and it was pulled out at the request of Spielberg, um, the reveal of what happens to this teacher um, but I feel like the script sets up with the film that's playing in the background. Mm -hmm. Do you remember the the dialogue that the, the film is saying when when the the teacher's kind of investigating what's going on with the gremlins pod? Oh, um, refresh my memory. He, it's it's talking about how much blood the human heart pumps out of the body. <laughs> oh yeah yeah yeah. Within yeah. ten minutes, I mean, I thought for sure this is leading up to just. You know, Kill Bill levels of spurting blood, you know, in Chris Columbus's script, oh. um, because that's the only reason to say, like, no, this is realistic. This is not unrealistic. The human body can pump this much blood in this amount of time. Wow. Um, I thought that for sure that's what it was leading up to. I know when they originally shot it, there's a syringe um, in the scene uh, in the original version that they shot. There were more like 50 syringes and they were in a different location on location than they were in this movie mm -hmm. and uh, Spielberg asked that that be cut out. So um, mm. yeah, again, I definitely suffered from kind of the different minds that butting up against each other, but maybe only suffered as a horror movie. I think it still works as a, as a film and I think it's a great film. 
I don't think it's a family film. I would not call this a family film. I think it's a, it's a, it's a PG 13. Um, that's, that's definitely the audience I think for those are the, the you know, a 13 year old is going to like this more than probably anybody else. Um, in terms of age appropriateness, but um, it's a great little monster movie, I think. And I'd probably make nine or ten the the bottom age. Yeah, for, no, yeah. I me. mean, uh, I don't know. When do you uh, when when do you hit kind of like fourth, fifth grade? To me, that's that's the best time to see it, probably, or that's the yeah. the first time that would be a good time to see it. Yeah, that's a that's about that age, I think. But yeah, I'm not my- sure that's a family film though. <laughs> There's one other reason to not show this to your young children besides scaring them oh, and um it's yes. so funny because there's this great what in my mind i've always referred to as a satellite story right um in this film and i so in preparation for our discussion i thought okay i'm going to google this um this gremlin satellite story so that i can talk about it in a little more depth and i couldn't anywhere on the internet find satellite story and i'm like that's so weird isn't that like a common term satellite story <laughs> and so finally i googled in quotes gremlin satellite story and the only hit that came up was jason piles talking about it on considering the sequels podcast you're damn right and i was just like <laughs> that's so weird <laughs> number one that i've picked up on your phrase but i have actually not ever heard that episode because i hadn't seen the the Toy Story films, um, which is the episode you discussed it on. But I listened to it for the first time today um, in preparation for this podcast because I was so fascinated <laughs> that Jason's the guy that I got this from. I don't think I got the Gremlins version of it from you because, again, I don't think I've heard that episode. But mm-hmm. but Satellite Story is, is one of your words that I've totally picked up on and just assumed that that was, uh, you know, normal movie um, – cinema criticism talk speak well thank you i I think it's yours yeah yeah i I believe it is because i was trying to um name what that very thing is and so a satellite story it's a little bit different from a backstory actually because usually a satellite story is um kind of like what it sounds like it's this side offshoot of a tale that's told in a film that gives you it's usually some kind of unsettling little creepy background knowledge it's like a backstory but backstories are more crucial to the plot satellite stories are not crucial but they they also set a creepy tone it's kind of like they typically give you unsettling information about how a character is damaged right yeah exactly Uh, and and this and gremlins has my all-time favorite me too satellite story in the world so what we'll do is um but again for your younger children this which i was what i was leading up to oh sorry Mm mm-hmm no, I'm just saying, and I think you put it perfectly on considering the sequels podcast. You said spoilers for Santa Claus ahead. <laughs> right. <laughs> it made me crack up. Yeah, so we'll, let's play. We'll play that satellite story for them now. Now I have another reason to hate Christmas. Okay, what are you talking about? The worst thing that ever happened to me was on Christmas. Oh, God. It was so horrible. It was Christmas Eve. I was nine years old. Me and Mom were were decorating the tree, waiting for Dad to come home from work. A couple hours went by. Dad wasn't home. Mom called the office. No answer. Christmas Day came and went, and still nothing. Police began a search. 
four or five days went by. Neither one of us could eat or sleep. Everything was falling apart. It was snowing outside. The house was freezing, so I went to try to light up the fire. And that's when I noticed the smell. Firemen came and broke through the chimney top. And me and Mom were expecting them to pull out a dead cat or a bird. And instead, they pulled out my father. He was dressed in a Santa Claus suit. He'd been climbing down the chimney on Christmas Eve, his arms loaded with presents. He was going to surprise us. He slipped and broke his neck, died instantly. And that's how I found out there was no Santa Claus. The only other reference I could find to Satellite Story was in a book called Essential Cinema by John Lewis. That guy, he refers to that as the beast, just his normal beast story he re- refers to as a mm. satellite story. Oh, wow. I never knew but that's that. The, that's the only other uh, reference I could find with related to screenwriting. Interesting. So that Santa Claus tale is genuinely chilling. And the other horror movie aspect to this Gremlins film is you know, that tale, that satellite story is scary. And she even, there's a little bit of setup earlier in the film where she refers to people committing suicide at Christmas time. And she's pretty graphic about it, talking about people opening up their wrists. Yeah. And um, so, you know, it's in there. You can tell. I mean, the way you described this was really insightful. And when people watch this movie with that in mind, then it, then it makes sense how you got this bizarre conglomeration of just weirdness in all these different tones but one thing i want to ask you what about the rule you know how there are three rules to taking care of a mogwai and one of the three yeah. rules is which keep- by the way mogwai is cantonese for monster which i love oh neat i did not know that i mean they apparently it's also kind of like a demon or devil spirit but but the the direct translation is monster which i i just love he goes into the shop and he says i want to buy this what's it called and they say monster <laughs> <laughs> i love that so um does that mean that these so are the the chinese man always the, knew that this was you know so are they from mogwai are from uh, hong kong then that's what we're I, I suppose to believe yeah we're supposed to believe but Oh, that's. I mean, those the demons um, that are associated with the original, you know, Mogwai legend in China. Um, you know, they're not. They have nothing to do with, you know, these Mogwai, the fuzzy little creatures and gremlins. Other than they do multiply in the rain. That is one of their. Um, oh, you know, they neat. they multiply through sexual intercourse, but they do it when it, whenever it rains, which well, I thought was interesting. You know, you gotta set the mood and. <laughs> right, right now, but, yeah. But I just thought that was—I thought that was kind of cool um, that they borrowed that little bit of it. You know, the, the rain makes them multiply. That's very. Or cool. the water makes them multiply, and I love that they have these kind of rat-like ears that you know maybe were brought in from Chris Columbus's New York apartment experience. And so I don't know. I think that it's just a really fun. Well, yeah, I just love the creation backstory of this movie and the ears actually, like Gizmo's ears. 
they actually look like bat wings yes. Yes. to me, like bat wings. That's weird. But no, I was going to mention is in the three rules. One of the rules is to keep them out of the light and it says sunlight will kill them. And that's like a vampire. So I, I wondered, I think that's interesting that they took that from the vampire side of things. Yeah. And I wonder then now that we kind of know a reference point for those other two rules where the don't feed them after midnight rule comes from. Hmm. Well, i I suspected when you told that little story, I had never heard that about Chris Columbus's rats. They're probably up eating after midnight, you know, trying to get food and stuff. That's probably (laughs) when I heard them wreaking havoc. But (laughs) that was amazing. Something else that really impressed me now watching this as an adult, the town that this takes place in is Kingston Falls, USA. It's a small town. And there's a character in this movie, and she's... um. Like she's kind of like the town grump or bully, and it's Mrs. Deagle. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So there's Mrs. Deagle in this, and I'm like, wow, she is exactly like Mr. Potter from It's a Wonderful Life. And then <laughs> it turns out that they actually show a clip from It's a Wonderful Life in this yes. film, and yeah. and they even use the name of the town in that film, which is Bedford Falls, and this is Kingston Falls. They have a yes. Mr. Potter parallel. And I really appreciated that. So the center of town in Gremlins for Kingston Falls happens to be Hill Valley um, from Back to the Future, the same set at Universal that they used for that film, which I love, uh, covered in snow. I love that that's the case. But another interesting bit of backstory for you and me, maybe not for anyone else, is that this is, the film was initially supposed to be shot in Provo, Utah. Um, <laughs> oh, wow. That was the original location for Gremlins. Um as they were in pre-production because um, Spielberg was going to get this great deal from Donnie Osmond (laughs) studios in Orem, Utah. And that's where they were going to use as their main studio location. And they were going to shoot downtown Provo's Kingston falls. Um, But then they realized that the movie was going to be so expensive with all of the uh, gremlins that they needed to make. They just couldn't do it on the low budget they had initially anticipated, so they had to take it to Universe or take it to Warner Brothers and make it a studio picture. Um, but initially, they had hoped to shoot it as kind of a little smaller independent film. Oh, that's neat! I had no idea. That's what led them to shooting it at uh, Universal Backlot instead. Well, that gives some insight there. So I came prepared to fight you and Doc because I thought you guys were going to be giving me a bunch of grief. (laughs) No, let's fight about it. That's great. No, no. Well, I wanted to (laughs) illustrate the the difference between um, horror movies that we celebrate as horror movies and this. But uh, it's really a moot point at this point. But we'll just play this clip because it'll be fun. In a lot of horror movies, they'll have like uh, a recitative or a theme for the monster. A monster will have its own theme music. And I have two familiar themes, and then I have the Gremlins theme. And you'll know all three. So the, the first two you'll know, and then you'll hear the Gremlin theme. Here, here they are. And let's compare and contrast. <laughs> Here's Gremlin. <laughs> I think it's scary. <laughs> it's so 
zany and wacky. It is. But that's Joe Dante. To me, that just feels like Joe Dante. But it is still scary. I think it's still scary. It's not. A, it's not. It's it, you're, It's a question of tone, like you were saying, Jason. But I love it. And I think it's still super creepy and like a twisted, broken music box clown, like evil circus kind of way. Yes. yes. Which I love about it. Um, True. But maybe the best measuring stick as to what and what isn't a horror movie is whether or not Gene Siskel and uh, Roger Ebert appreciate it. (laughs) Because if funnily enough, after all the hubbub they made about the script, when the movie finally came out, they both loved it. And so I had a little clip from uh, Siskel and Ebert about Grumlins. I thought I'd play for you. Here it is. Yes, I liked it too. Uh, maybe I have a little sick sense of humor. I, no, maybe. I know I do. I, I do too, like, right. Okay, and I like that part of it. It's not a namby-pamby little mm-hmm. film, and parents should know that. But uh, I enjoyed it because it really is walking between two kinds mm-hmm. of pictures, and I think it pulls it off. It's walking between the sweet little innocent Christmas fable, and it's also a flat-out horror film with the bad gremlins who are going to devour that town that a little boy lives in. And I thought the director, Joe Dante, really did a nice job moving between those two kinds of stories, so I bought the whole thing. I'll tell you what, in a way, this is a haunted movie, and what it is haunting is the whole tradition of Norman Rockwell Christmas American Hollywood movie. Right. The first shot in the movie, practically, is that town that's obviously right. an artificial, you know, all the little lights glimmering just right. like at the beginning right. of a Disney picture. And right. before long, everything that can go wrong on Christmas Eve in a sweet little town is going to go wrong, and the whole place is going to be up for grabs. And that kind of satire was really interesting in this film. It's like a Norman Rockwell painting, well, only there's blood on the turkey. (laughs) Blood on the turkey. I like that. (laughs) Yeah, me too. That's awesome. I I thought they put it well, and um, I thought it was interesting as well. Uh, You know, one thing we haven't really talked about, but our listeners brought up last time, you know, in our Horrors of Consumerism episode, this movie really is about kind of gluttony. And... um, and I thought that I feel like that plays a big role in it. You know, a, a couple of our listeners mentioned this one as their pick for kind of the the horror movie about consumerism, and the second movie as well. The second movie deals more specifically, I guess, with that idea of um, you know consumerism as kind of a, its obvious topic. But I think even in this movie, that's in there, and definitely the way the gremlins act. Um, is kind of that horrors of gluttony mm-hmm. uh, thing, you know? Yeah, I I hundred percent agree with you. Yeah, because they're they're so sloppy and they're such pigs and <laughs> just they're so driven by just kind of the most base emotions, yeah. you know? Yeah, pure hedonists they are. So I wanted to give this uh, credit. Willis Wheeler said, "I've got two movies for you: Gremlins and Gremlins to the New Batch." Um, so that was Willis Wheeler was the first to kind of mention that, but we had several others. Um, Holly mentioned Gremlins too. Um, she said it was actually what turned her off to mass consumerism, especially on Black Friday, um, because she was raised on Gremlins too. And then um, the Unknown Murderer also said, "Yes, Gremlins is my favorite." consumerism horror film it's obviously about christmas consumerism and not heeding the warnings about what need and greed can do to us irresponsible actions destroy an entire town for pete's sake (laughs) wow i thought that was great well done levi i like that that's very cool one last thing i'll just throw out there you know you mentioned about the the kyle bishop test about whether or not the dog lives yeah that's in this movie so we know it's uh it's not a quote unquote serious horror film, but in this horror film, the monster 
you know, one of the, the most popular conventions is the, the monster is not dead when you think it's dead, you know, and we still have, you know, a, a pretty persistent monster. And it's not, I don't know if persistence accurate, but it's neat that, that they have that same little trope in this film too. And I'll also say again, the, you know, the dog did die in the original screenplay. And Chris Columbus has just announced as of a few months ago that they're going to go ahead. He gave his permission to go ahead and do a remake of Gremlins, presumably based on his original screenplay, which again was much more straight ahead horror than the eventual Spielberg Dante version. So I'm quite curious to see if they do do the remake, which I'm not necessarily in favor of, but it sounds like it probably will be done. Um, I'm very curious to see what the gore and horror level is in that remake version. I think it's going to be higher. I'd be totally up for a new Gremlins remake, especially if it's more hardcore, but I think they're going to have trouble going that direction just because of the, the well, there's the, the marketing aspect. There's the, you can sell Gremlin toys and Gremlin dolls to kids, you know, gizmo yeah. toys. I mean, I had a gizmo doll, which was awesome. <sighs> I always wanted one of those. It was so great. And when you, and I'm sorry to share this, this is definitely oversharing, but like when you, (laughs) when you, if you would shake him, he would make this squeaky little gizmo noise. And if you would throw him up in the air, like, you know, throw him up and catch him, he would do a noise. And it was the cutest (laughs) thing in the world. I freaking love that stuffed animal gizmo, but it was awesome. And I think that they'll really have trouble fighting the temptation to to not market this to kids so i would love to see a full-blown horror gremlins but i don't know if we're gonna get that so anyways well we'll see i guess but as far as a christmas themed type horror like all of the chaos all this happens on christmas eve and so it's it's in there there's a lot in there and as um siskel and ebert said it has that kind of wonderful Norman Rockwell feeling, but I think because it's shot in Hill Valley, I love that it has, it feels just like hometown America. It re- I just love the setting of this film, you know? And, um, and I think also because of Phoebe Kate's satellite story, I think thematically it really ties in Christmas well mm-hmm. also. So I think for me on my Christmas rating, I'm going to give this one a nine. I think it's about as, it's close to as good as you can get in a horror movie. Um, to to tie in it as a Christmas movie as well. In fact, Joe Dante was actually, he requested a summer release of this film because he didn't want it to be known just as a Christmas movie. And there's a great little moment in the behind the scenes documentary where he's talking to the young actor, the the boy that works at the Chinese store with his grandpa. Um, they're talking about when the movie will come out. And he says, why don't you release it at Christmas time? And Dante says, you know, if you release it at Christmas time, it's just a Christmas movie. It's gone in two weeks. You want this to come out in the summer, you know? And I thought that was interesting that he was thinking about that back then, but I'm going to defy his wishes and say, this is a great Christmas movie. Um, it is one you can appreciate any time of year as he hoped. But I think, uh, I think this is a great one to watch around the holidays. Very smart. So what do you rate gremlins then? On the horror scale or is just as a, on the movie scale, it's hard to say. I mean, I think you're right. Um, maybe for this audience, not the amount of horror that they would wish for. <laughs> um, but I think it is a great mo- movie. And I think if you take it on those terms of, I would say it's first a satire and second a horror comedy. Or maybe first a satire of a horror comedy. <laughs> um mm. 
And then, you know, and then, well, that's, I think maybe that's just what it is. I think this is a satire of a horror comedy mm-hmm. and, um, and I like it for what it is. It, it is maybe a little mild, the PG 13 level. Um, but I, I'd say this is a eight and a half for me as a film. And, um, I love it. And, uh, it's one that I, I watch as much as possible. Probably every other year I watch this movie. Nice. As soon as I can, I'll be watching it with my kids. You tell people to buy it. This is a buy. Okay. Absolutely must own. Yeah. Yeah. And I think we were approaching this point earlier. I don't know if we ever got it out there altogether, but I wanted to say, um, yeah, if you do watch this with your kids and they are still Santa Claus fans, <laughs> they come right out and say the big spoiler for Santa Claus. And that was really awkward watching that with my son fielding that because <laughs> I didn't have the volume fast enough. So that was fun. Oh, by the way, sorry, before I do my reading, I forgot. There is an E.T. joke in this that I loved in the stuffed animals. I thought that was amazing. Yeah. That was really good. Anyway. And also, there's a mm-hmm. reference to this movie in Goonies, which came out the next year. When Chunk calls the police to tell them that he's seen the Fratellis get away from the jailhouse, they say, are you the same kid that called about the animals with the little sharp teeth that multiply when you throw water on them? <laughs> Which I thought was funny. <laughs> that's great. Yeah. So this has a lot of clever little things in it. So yeah, I'm I'm rating this here for the horror movie podcast audience. It's it's, it's it's comedy horror, very little horror, and it is rated PG. But you're right, Wolfman. It probably should have been. I mean, this is what, as you said, helped inspire the PG thirteen rating, right? This and Temple of Doom. Yes. So but if you know that ahead of time, I think if you're going to raise a horror fan, if you're going to teach your kids to, you know, become horror fans like you, then I think this is definitely a good stepping stone type of film. This is a good primer. And so yeah. I think it has value on horror movie podcast. If if, oh, for, yeah. if for no other reason, just for that, because it is a good lead in. Because when I was watching this with my son, I've shown him the universal horror like the, like Frankenstein and Dracula and what Invisible Man and all that stuff. Did you show him Creature? I haven't yet. That's that's my kid's favorite of the Universal Monster movies. Okay, I got to do that next then. But but yeah, so when I was showing it to him, I really felt like for the first time cuz I've shown him Godzilla stuff and blah blah blah, but I felt like for the first time showing him this movie, I'm like, okay, he's seeing like actual live action horror convention on the screen. Whereas, and that's why I love monster house. Cause that, that is built exactly like a horror film, but it's animated. And so this is like the next step after monster house, I think because it's live yeah. action and it's all there. I mean, it, it, it definitely has its horror. So, I mean, I've shown my kids the horror, the universal monster movies as well, but they are still getting freaked out by, Monster House and Paranorman and Frankenweenie and Hotel Transylvania. And that's like, they're still on that level. So I don't know how to, I don't know how to toughen them up a little bit. But <laughs> I don't think I'm going to be showing Gremlins till they're at least like eight years old. Okay. All right. Well, I mean, yeah, everybody's different, huh? Yeah. When I was, well, it's yeah. funny. It's funny that I'm a host of a horror movie podcast now because when I was little, I was so sensitive. I was the scaredest kid 
that I knew in the world. Like I was so afraid of everything, but, <laughs> but still, I mean, that's probably what made me a horror fan because that you're so intrigued by the ride that it can give you that, that emotional uh, roller coaster that a horror is. It's incredible. Yes. So this is a, for horror movie pie. I mean, if I were rating this on movie podcast weekly, we get in trouble for doing this. Don't we, Josh? Yeah, they hate this. The Just people, tell them what it is as a movie. Your, your description has already told them what yeah. they can expect as horror fans. As a movie, <laughs> what, what? how good a movie is this? Oh, boy. That's really hard to differentiate in this case because, like, The Muppet Show, the last third of it is The Muppet Show. Do you know what I mean? And I mean The Muppet Show for real. Yeah, but I like The Muppet Show. Well, I like it too, but I mean, it's hard to like, <laughs> it's hard to pitch the Muppet show to a horror audience, but I, I know they appreciate it probably like we do. Well, you can also just say that's not, it's not necessarily a horror movie, but as a film, as a PG rated movie that I showed to my child. Yeah. Yeah. It's, okay. Well, I'll come in as 7.5. Really? Yeah. What? 7.5. Yeah. I give it 7.5. I felt bad about 8.5. I think I should. I'm going to go up to a nine on mine, first of all. But second of all, but second of all, I mean, think about all the crappy kids' movies you watch. The, I mean, you don't rate them on this show, but on Movie Podcast Weekly, all the terrible movies you take your kids to see. Yeah. You think this is in the 7.5 range of those movies? Well, uh, see, 7.5 is a really good rating for me. Yes. I but mean, it's hard. It's hard. You've given bad children's movies ratings this high. Like what? I don't know. Lego movie? <laughs> no way. No way. <laughs> I'm just joking. Yeah. Anyway. Um, I'm a little disappointed. I just have to say that. No, I understand. I, I get that a lot, actually. <laughs> but I, I think it's, if you have kids, I think it's a buy because I think they'll watch it lots of times. I mean, I the very next day, my boy wanted to watch Gremlins again. So, I mean, it was a hit. And, um, but if you don't have kids or whatever, and you've never seen Gremlins, I think it's a must-see at least once. you got to watch it at least once, just because yeah. I think it's... It's a really fun watch, and the, the middle portion especially is great. And it, the only disappointment is that you, as a horror fan, you think, man, this could have gone a lot further into horror realms that it didn't go to. Because mm -hmm. I think it's effectively scary for a, a bit there. Yeah, that 15 minutes, it... it it approaches it and it's definitely like it's, all the stuff that happens at the school, I think is legitimately feels scary, you know? Yeah. It's flying a horror flag. And then, and the mom's scenes are awesome. They're not scary necessarily, but they're cool. Yeah. And they feel like a horror movie. They totally do. And then, um, Stripe does something brilliant at the Y, the YMCA. That's yeah, amazing. And the first time you see that scene, it's like sinking to pit in your stomach when you see that scene the first time yeah that that's kind of a freaky scene so i'll give it that for sure so wolfman josh says gremlins is a nine out of ten he says buy it and his christmas rating is a nine yeah and i give gremlins a 7.5 i say buy it especially if you have kids if you've never seen it then definitely check it out at least once it's worth your time now i'll move into my feature review of wind chill from 2007 we had a class together you know Intro to modern philosophy? What? There's like a million people in that class. It's like Woodstock. 
So uh, are you doing anything over the break? Ugh, I'm getting that laser eye surgery. But your glasses look so good on you. How would you know? I never wear them outside my dorm. The National Weather Service has issued a winter storm warning for the entire eastern seaboard. Temperatures will plunge with a wind chill reaching 30 degrees below zero. What the hell is this? Are we lost or something? It's a shortcut. Get back on the highway. Relax. Pull over. Pull over. Wind Chill was directed by Gregory Jacobs, and it stars the lovely Emily Blunt, who just starred in one of the best films of 2014, that Tom Cruise sci-fi flick called Edge of Tomorrow. Emily Blunt is also married to John Krasinski, who played Jim Halpert in The American Office, just so you know who she is. Anyway, it's interesting to me that she appears to have done this small little indie horror film immediately after she did The Devil Wears Prada. Now, the first thing I appreciate about Windchill is that it's set in the snow, and it's sort of uncommon for horror movies to be set in the snow, so I like to try to track these down and keep a note of them. And this one also happens to take place at Christmas time on December 23rd, to be exact. So if you want to watch a horror flick the day before Christmas Eve, here you go. This is the one. The film's premise is a mix between Dead End with a little touch of The House of the Devil. Now, I'd classify Windchill as a drama first, a thriller second, a mystery third, and supernatural horror fourth. But don't read the premise anywhere, like on IMDb or anything like that, because I think the less you know about the horror elements, the better. But you can trust this premise here from Jay of the Dead. Here we go. So this girl, played by Emily Blunt, we never do learn her name, she's away at college and she's planning to take a bus home to Delaware for Christmas when she decides to check the ride-sharing board instead. So she hitches a ride with a guy, played by Ashton Holmes, we never learn his name either. Ashton Holmes has primarily been a TV actor, but you'll recognize him when you see him. The Emily Blunt character is a real witch, or something that rhymes with witch. (laughs) And we quickly learn that this guy is kind of a weirdo, and it's a little unsettling. Well, the driver guy decides that he wants to take the scenic route, and they crash and get stranded in a snowbank along the side of an infamously dangerous road. And that's when mysterious and inexplicable horrors start to befall them. Now, as I said, Windchill is more of a supernatural thriller type of horror movie. And even though it doesn't have a lot of Christmas-themed imagery in it, it has several Christmas songs that play on the radio as they're traveling, and one of the Christmas songs becomes kind of important. The characters also talk about Christmas, and they even mention the Dutch Sinterklaas and the Black Peets that Wolfman and I discussed during our Saint review. And I'll give this movie credit. Even though supernatural horror films aren't necessarily my preferred subgenre, this movie is kind of creepy. And if you had some way to watch this during a winter campout where it's very cold and dark around you, that would be ideal. Or maybe watch this in your bedroom with the lights off and open the windows. You know, you want it to be cold when you're watching this. I think it'd be a really fun experience. If anybody does that, let me know what you think of the experience. But just to be clear, there's not a lot of horror imagery in this movie, 
hardly any, in fact. I mean, of course it has a couple of jump scares, but you don't get traditional kills or gore or blood or monster type of scenes. It's more about the mood, which is pretty creepy. So yeah, I'd call Windchill a decent little chiller, and it's well made, the performances are good, and the film looks pretty good as well. And if you like Dead End, like my buddy Dr. Shock does, then you'll also like this movie, uh, for certain. By the way, that's not a spoiler, by any means. It's not the exact same premise as Dead End, but I think it will remind you a lot of Dead End. In episode 32, I rated Dead End a 6 out of 10, and I said rent it, and I'm coming in right at the same place for this one. Windchill from 2007 is a 6 out of 10 for me, and I'd say rent it on December 23rd. And now I'll move into my feature review of Larry Fessenden's The Last Winter from 2006. Where's my welcoming party? You doing? <laughs> we need to talk, you and me. We don't need the others. I'm not gonna sign something just because you need me to. That's the wrong answer. The world we grew up in is changed forever. There is no way home. The first thing I need to tell you about The Last Winter is it's not a Christmas-themed horror movie, but it is set in Alaska on the North Slope in the vicinity of the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, so it's very cold and wintry. Think cold, secluded, and snowy like The Thing, or like the setting of that terrible Kate Beckinsale movie from 2009 called Whiteout. The next thing I should tell you about The Last Winter is that it's not much of a horror movie at all. It's one of those dramas with horror elements. So this movie's a drama first, a mystery second, and a horror movie third. But it's not my fault that I'm bringing you this particular review because some of the posters for this movie show a boring looking crate or box out in the snow with what looks like a dead body lying nearby. But The Last Winter has other posters that are a close-up of a frozen and discolored dead body in the snow that looks heinous and very upsetting. And there's a pull quote from some moronic film critic at the LA Daily News who obviously watches like two horror movies a year, and he's quoted as raving, the scariest movie of the year. (laughs) So I know not to believe pool quotes typically, but that quote combined with the image of the dead body, which you can see this awesome artwork in episode 37 here, you know, you could see how I could be misled and tricked into this movie. Now, I do have a little confession to make. I had heard of director Larry Fessenden before watching the documentary Birth of the Living Dead, but it was after hearing him and his talking head interviews, those little sound bites that he did for the documentary, and hearing that his horror sensibilities come from the same place that I'm coming from, and so I was persuaded to check out his movies. So the first one of his movies that I watched was a film called Beneath, which is about a group of friends who get stranded in a rowboat 
on a lake with a giant killer man-eating fish stalking them from the water. I reviewed that movie in episode 22, but in short, I was disappointed. So, I gave Larry Fessenden another try here with The Last Winter, and I'm sorry to say that I'm starting to lose faith in Larry Fessenden. If you know a Fessenden horror flick that I should watch, let me know, because I definitely want to check it out. I think the guy is very smart, and I believe in him, and I bet there is a good horror movie of his out there, and I just need to check them out. I think he's got a vampire flick that I need to look at called Habit from 1995. I need to check that out. Anyway, here's the premise to The Last Winter. An American oil company is struggling to build an ice road into the northern Arctic wildlife refuge in Alaska in hopes of being able to start oil production on the North Slope. But the unusually warm weather is making it impossible to build the ice roads. So, as the oil company employees struggle to find a solution to their road problem, while simultaneously dealing with the regulations environmental guy who's breathing down their necks, members of the group start becoming oddly disoriented and disturbed until their symptoms escalate into their mysterious deaths one by one. And that's basically the premise. Now, here's the thing. The boss man of the oil company employees, he's played by Ron Perlman, and he's excellent as usual. And the regulations environmental guy is played by James LaGrosse, or LaGrosse. And he looks and acts like Richard Dreyfuss's Hooper character in Jaws. And since Ron Perlman is kind of like the Robert Shaw Quint character, You've got some great character dynamics in this movie played out by some great actors. In fact, if this film were solely a drama about the wrestle between oil companies and environmentalists, then this would be a great little movie, I think. But when the horror comes in, it changes the film, of course, and the horror is mild. It's few and far between, I think. And it takes a while for it to really blossom. So initially, I was actually interested in this movie just as a drama. In fact, you kind of forget that you're watching a horror movie. And because it's like 60% drama, 35% mystery, and 5% horror, that's what happens. You kind of lose track of what it's meant to be. But maybe Fessenden wasn't trying to make a straight-up horror flick. And I can definitely appreciate that. And in fact, there is one sequence that I'll give this movie a lot of credit for, and Fessenden a lot of credit for. There's a fire sequence where you have victims getting burned alive, and it's absolutely awful. It's very upsetting, very scary in a humanistic sense, and it's uh, very well done. But that occurs like 65 minutes into this hour and 41 minute movie. This movie has some gore and some blood, but it's just too little too late, I think. And after seeing Beneath and The Last Winter, I'm starting to think that maybe Larry Fessenden has problems executing his monsters, meaning portraying them on screen or bringing them to life on screen, not killing them. Now, when you see the quote-unquote monster at the end of this film, it's actually kind of a unique concept, kind of neat, I'll give it credit, as long as you don't think about it too much. If you start dwelling on it, then it starts to seem silly or something but again like I said too little too late I would have liked to had more of the quote-unquote monster in other parts of the film 
But after all, this is kind of an arty horror film. It's kind of Fessenden's thing. And for that reason, I think someone like Wolfman Josh would really like this movie. I think he would dig it. This is probably something Wolfman Josh should check out. So hopefully Josh listens to this episode and Josh, watch this one. I think you'll like it. And I think Doc would certainly appreciate it too. It does have very strong environmentalism themes, so you could say that this is a horror movie for tree huggers. (laughs) But for me, The Last Winter is a 4 out of 10, and I just say, avoid it. Alright, and before we run Wolfman Josh, I really want to appreciate this excellent voicemail from our main man Eric in Long Island. He brings it. I love this guy. He answered a question that I had about the Babadook that I thought was very cool. He actually stopped in the middle of listening to our review, called in and told me what was up, informed me, and then kept listening. And I think it's super (laughs) cool. So this is Eric. Hey, Horror Movie Podcast. It's Eric from Long Island. And I'm listening to the Babadook episode. And uh, you were wondering about the title, if that was a name of a mythical creature from Australia or, you know, what a weird title it is and where it might have come from. If you scramble the letters in Babadook, you get a bad book, which makes yeah. sense because the child book is basically a character in and of itself within the film. I love the Babadook. I thought it was one of the better horror movies in a long time. And uh, I'm loving listening to you guys uh, analyze it. So I'm going to go back and listen to the rest of the show. Don't you find that interesting? Take it easy. <laughs> a bad book. Yeah. Wow. That's kind of mind-blowing, right? I mean, that's so cool that he... I wonder how he put that together. He must be doing a lot of that... Uh... New York Times word scramble over there on Long Island. (laughs) Or is it the, it's a crossword, never mind. (laughs) Pretty good. I did not catch that. Very good. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, that makes sense. So that's pretty cool. I like it. I like it a lot. I believe that's probably the case. Now, I haven't looked up many interviews with her yet, the writer-director, but I bet you at some point somebody asks her that. And so, I don't know. I bet you we'll come across her saying that at some point. But I bet you're right, Eric. Well done, Eric. So, Wolfman, let's talk about our next episode that's up and coming, the one that comes out on January 2nd. It will be our end-of-the-year wrap-up for 2014 and what's coming ahead in 2015. Now, we had, I believe it was Juan, our friend Juan, asked about this on Movie Podcast Weekly's website on the comment boards because over there, we're doing a big top 10 list at the end of the year, as we always do. And I want to do something similar here, of course, but I don't feel like I've seen as many 2014 horror movies as I would like in order to really put together a good list. So I think my approach to it, and I want to hear your thoughts on it, is just to talk about the films of 2014 and mention the best ones I've seen. I mean, I may come up with a top three or a top five, but unless I have a good sample of like 50 or more, I'm reluctant to do a top 10 list. Yeah, I feel similarly. It's been a bit of an underwhelming year, at least from the films I've seen theatrically uh, that came out this year. So yeah, I mean, I'd be happy to discuss all the releases we saw and and give our take on them or if, you know, I mean, who knows, once I get the list in front of me, maybe I'll be able to come up with a top five list, but Mm -hmm. it seems doubtful to me right now. Yeah, I mean, last year what we did, we did that like a top five or whatever, and we talked about a lot of the releases and it was fun. I mean, we got a lot of movies discussed in that episode, but also we did this little thing where Basically, the horror films we watched during that year, during 2013, 
that were not current year releases, so they could have been released from any year. We did a top 10 favorites of the stuff that you saw. And I think that's of value too. I think that's kind of fun. So I'll probably bring something like that to the table. I know Dr. Shock said he wants to talk about the top 10 Blu-rays, horror Blu-rays that he got in 2014. So that can be interesting. And of course, we're going to talk about some of the stuff that's coming up in 2015. And for a portion of that episode, at least, we're planning at this point to record some with Kyle Bishop. And we're going to be talking about One of the Dead and uh, (laughs) New Year's Evil, because that will be January 2nd and kind of our New Year's episode. So New Year's Evil is currently streaming on Netflix in the United States. So that's kind of what we got coming up. Uh, Do you have any other special kind of lists you want to do for this? Because it is my favorite episode of the year. No, I, I like both of those ideas. I'll probably do what you're talking about, maybe like a top five of the uh, movies I saw this year on Blu-ray or, or in theaters or mm-hmm. or whatever. Yeah. Maybe I'll just say the top five horror movies I saw this year. It, it could include new releases, but it may not. <laughs> right. Is that, is that fair? Yeah, I mean, whatever you want to do, that's fine. Just a few quick little notes and reminders. First, we'd like to thank Shannon for the generous donation We sincerely appreciate it. And don't forget to email us at horrormoviepodcast at gmail.com to send in your picks for your favorite horror movies of 2014. You can do a top 10 list or whatever you want. We would just love to get your feedback. It'll actually help us in preparing our next episode because we'll read your picks. And I had a couple of people mention that they liked my original piano composition during our spoiler section of the Babadook review from our previous episode. One listener mentioned that he'd like to hear the whole thing, so I'll go ahead and include that piece at the very end of this episode in its entirety. It's called A Day at the Beach, June 23rd, 1988. And if you dig my song, you can download an MP3 of it free in the show notes for this episode. All right, before we wrap up episode 37 of Horror Movie Podcast, just want to encourage you to actually check out our previous year's Christmas episode. We've been doing this long enough that we have another Christmas episode. It was number five, and that's when we did Bad Santa's Freaky Phone Calls and Klaus Kinski on that one. And and we actually reviewed Silent Night, Deadly Night from 1984, of course, and Black Christmas from 1974, of course. And we also did a a couple little like wintry type horror things, just like we did in this show. Uh, Doc covered Dead Snow in that one, and Wolfman Josh did Devil's Pass. So that is episode five, if you want more Christmas horror from us. We're going to do this every year, of course. And if episode five of Horror Movie Podcast still isn't enough of Christmas horror podcasting, I'd love it if you'd check out The Resurrection of Zombie 7 with Ron Martin and Little Miss Horror Nerd over there. Specifically on episode 122, I was a special guest over there and we covered Silent Night, Deadly Night 3, Better Watch Out. I had such a good time talking with those guys about that movie and we really went in depth on it. So I definitely think you should listen to it and try it out. That film is of note for two big reasons. And number one is, I think that it may technically be, as far as I know, I mean, I think it was released in November of 1989, so it may be officially the last 80s slasher film. I used to think it was Halloween 5, 
but actually I think Silent Night, Deadly Night 3 is later. So if anybody knows of anything that came out in December of uh, 1989, then by all means, let me know. But this one is definitely later than Halloween 5. So that's kind of interesting to me. Also, the other reason is in the Film Snobs Dictionary, they provide a top 10 list of snob-approved sequels. It's usually film snobs hate sequels, I guess. And this one at the time of publication, it was uh, number 9 on that list, Silent Night, Deadly Night 3. So anyway, check out episode 122 on the Resurrection of Zombie 7 podcast. I will have it linked in the show notes for this episode. And I think that just about wraps up episode 37 of Horror Movie Podcast. And we thank you for listening. We hope you'd enjoyed this show. And uh, once again, Merry Christmas. And I just want to turn it over to my co-host here and see if you have any plugs or anything to say to the listeners. Dr. Shock. No, just uh, continuing on with the e-books. You know, again, anybody interested in checking out a uh, review copy, let me know. Other than that, check me out at dvdinfatuation.com. I'm on the Land of the Creeps podcast, and uh, talk to you in a couple weeks. All right, and Wolfman Josh. Well, we got a lot of responses to our Black Friday episode. I asked people to leave their comments as to what their favorite horror films dealing with consumerism were uh, in the comments section at horrormoviepodcast.com. And yeah, we got a ton of responses, so thanks to everyone who left a response. We have The Stuff from Allison. Uh, We got Willis Wheeler chiming in with Gremlins and Gremlins 2. You had a surprising amount of love for Chopping Mall. What did you guys think about that? Did you notice that? Yeah. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. yeah. yeah I, think it's, I think it's grandfathered in with people. I mean, it's one of those movies, if you saw it back in the day, you know, you have this soft spot. And, and like I said, I would, I would have a soft spot for it, too. If I saw it back in the day, I probably would have liked it considerably more. Mm, yeah. Um, someone said Straw Dogs, which I thought was an interesting choice. David said Chrysar or The Pied Piper from 1986. Have you guys heard of that film, Chrysar, no. a.k.a. The Pied Piper? I, don't I think can't so. say I have, no. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. Um, he said it's a stop-motion film from Czechoslovakia, um, a very dark retelling of The Pied Piper story. And I always think The Pied Piper is a really scary story, actually. Yeah, it's oh, creepy. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's something that always freaked me out as a kid. Needful Things which I thought was a great selection. That's a, that is oh, nice. a good selection. Who did that one? Uh, David said Needful Things. Shout out. Yep. Yeah, great. Yeah, um, we, we got another stuff from Jangel's twin, um, <laughs> a.k.a. Tim J. So thank you for another inclusion of the stuff. It's definitely one of my picks. Now let's hope he's twin. not, not Jangel's twin. I told him <laughs> he could have made money in the second and third film because... Oh, John Gelger, he wasn't in the second Yeah, one, that right? Dale guy didn't return as Jan Gelson. Holy cow, remember, remember the scene, Jay, where it's just a, the picture of him? Oh. And they're talking to him <laughs> as he's standing there. <laughs> Get that for somebody for Christmas. Anyway, sorry, go ahead, Wolfman. You I don't. Jan Gels Twin also came up with a great one that I can't believe I didn't think of. He's a Daybreakers, which I. Yes. That, that's such a perfect choice. Nice. I think we failed people. We're going to have to, you know, if we do this Black Friday thing next year, let's oh, there let's, we go. let's bring there these these go. good picks back and do them. We got several people chiming in uh, with They Live. Uh, Shannon mm-hmm. mentioned They Live. Holly mentioned They Live. And I think uh, those are wonderful. That's a wonderful choice. It is, you know, mm-hmm. on Jason's line, probably uh, between horror and sci-fi. <laughs> yeah. What do you say, Jay? Yeah. Yeah, it's okay. 
<laughs> I got another Gremlins 2 from Holly, which I don't know. I know, Jason, you're not a big fan of the Gremlins films, but Gremlins 2 is... No. Yeah. <laughs> That's not true. I like the Gremlins films. It's just like... Anyway, I'm sure we've talked about it ad nauseum in the episode, but... We got a You're Next, which I thought was an interesting choice. But this is the one that really blew me away. David and Tony is on fire. Both came in with Hostel. Brilliant. And I thought, man, that, that was brilliant. That um, is re- absolutely. These guys are bringing it. So yep. the next year then, Hostel and what were the... Hostel, The Stuff, Daybreakers. Daybreakers. Yeah. Um, There's another one I love. They live. Oh, it was Gremlins too, right, Jason? No, there was another one. Uh, <laughs> I was gave a shout out. What was it? It was David too. I think it was another one of his. Oh, he had the pie. Oh, he had Needful Things. Needful Things. Needful Things. That's Needful gotta things. be in yep. there. Okay. That was, br- that was brilliant. Okay. Um, I'm writing these down. Okay. Let me read a little bit of the commentary here on Hostel because I think that's great. Okay. David, who's not a fan of Hostel, he says, do you guys think that the Hostel franchise could be a commentary on consumerism? It's almost like the idea of promoting one's superiority over others via spending, taking it to its most disturbing extreme. The killers are purchasing an experience designed to give them a sense of empowerment. They are paying to consume a human life. And then Tony is on fire, uh, chimes in, you stole my words completely. It is about insatiable consumption, which leads to the ultimate need of playing God to achieve satisfaction due to boredom from having everything in excess and therefore nothing bringing actual pleasure. Guys, you knocked it out of the park. That's the best. That's the best thing I've ever heard about Hostel. That's exactly right. (laughs) That really is the best commentary on Hostel I've ever heard. And it's the best thing I think that was said even out of our entire Black Friday episode. So let's save that and say it next year like it was ours. Okay. (laughs) I'm just kidding. We'll we'll just steal it because no one will remember having said that a year earlier. (laughs) Right. It's brilliant. Several votes for Dawn of the Dead, which are spot on, obviously. Mm -hmm. 28 days later. um, Interesting pick. Um, Let's see. What what did he say about that? I, I was kind of surprised by that one. Consumerism. They're infected by consumerism and rage. And what possesses people during the shopping holidays? more than rage and so he he has another black friday clip um mm. that juan has posted here <laughs> nice. that, was, that was pretty interesting so anyway thanks everybody for your um entries we got a ton of them i'm gonna i put everyone's name here into a hat and i am going to randomly draw two winners i decided since we got so many i'm going to give out two copies of horror cinema jonathan penner's book so let's reach into the nice. horror movie podcast which is brew let's see here <laughs> Cauldron. Well done. And Holly. Okay, Holly, you are one of our winners. Holly, what did she recommend? Oh, They Live and Gremlins too. So well done, Holly. Good job. And uh, go ahead and send Jason your contact info. Where, Jason? Horrormoviepodcast at gmail.com. And I will send out that book to you. And I have two-day delivery on Amazon. So if you do it quickly enough, you may actually get this in time for Christmas. Nice. And um, let's see what else get one more shannon okay wow, so shannon, shannon. send your uh contact info into jason and uh, we'll get you one as well shannon left a ton of feedback so i, I don't even know which one to name for shannon but Sh- shannon is awesome yes yeah, so congrats that's great shannon well deserved All right so i hope you guys enjoy our gift to you from black friday to christmas from horror movie podcast yes and thank you wolfman for taking care of that contest for us yeah absolutely all right we love your comments make sure you get involved in the horror movie podcast community we've got a good thing going here so uh just jump in there with the crew if you haven't commented yet it'd be fun to hear from you 
You can leave that in the show notes or just email us at horrormoviepodcast at gmail.com. And my favorite way to receive feedback is through our voicemail number, which is 801-382-8789. You can find all our episodes, including the weekly horror movie podcast and Horror Metropolis at our website, horrormoviepodcast.com. You can subscribe free in iTunes, and you can follow us on Twitter at HorrorMovieCast. I want to thank Fred Ingram for the use of his music for our theme song, and you can find more of Fred's music at FrederickIngram.com, and that'll all be linked in the show notes here for episode 37. So I think that's it. We thank you for listening, and you can join us again in two weeks for our end-of-the-year wrap-up episode. It will be on January 2nd. Don't miss that one my favorite thing of the whole year so merry christmas and happy new year from horror movie podcast where we're dead serious about horror movies ho ho horror movie podcast (laughs) now i want you to remember to stay good boys and girls respect your mothers and fathers and do what they tell you obey your teachers and learn a whole lot. Now, if you do this, I'll make sure you get good presents from me every year. (laughs) But if you're bad boys and girls, your name goes in the bad boys and girls book, and I'll bring you something horrible. Thank you.